This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. A Thursday edition of the Sports Bash. We are live. 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. What it be, what it be, one and all. I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Hennings producing today's show. You out there. We got uh, a little NBA Finals Game 3 recap. Nuggets win pretty handily last night, by the way. Got that coming up for you. Michael Kasky Blomain will join us at 3 to talk a little finals, a little Sixers, a little James Harden. You know, this Harden thing's going to kind of linger for about a month. You know, his camp will get stuff out. The other side will get things out. Somewhere in between. Who shall we believe? MKB from CBS Sports covers the NBA at 3 o'clock today. Obviously, uh, the Flyers news over the last couple of days, we're going to be keeping our eyes on the Flyers because you know, we talked to Kevin Dershow yesterday. He said at the beginning of the offseason, he would have had Carter Hart being moved at about 15%. And he said after what happened on Tuesday, that he puts that number at about 50-50. So I'm going to be keeping my eye on social media to see if something happens with Carter Hart. But another possibility, according to Pierre Lebron from The Athletic, is that after Danny Briere's first significant move uh, as the GM, that he is listening to Carter Hart. But he said his understanding is that the Flyers will listen on Travis Konechny. And he said that already he is hearing from league sources that the Flyers will get many serious offers, at least one or two serious offers this summer on TK, who has two years left on the deal. So that is something, I don't know that that's going to happen today, for instance, but obviously, you know, when the offseason gets here, for all sports, the offseason is a chance for the fans to do something that we all dream and think we can do, which is be like the armchair general manager. Everybody thinks they could coach the team. I don't think many people think they could play. <laughs> I give the fans some credit. You guys do understand that you're not better than the players, but many of you think that you're better than the coaches. Many of you think that you're smarter than the general managers. So we all think that we could do a good job putting a team together, and that's what makes this so intriguing with the Flyers. You know, 10 years ago, the NBA draft is on June 22nd. And on 2013, whatever the date was of the NBA draft, the process was essentially born. And it created a divide and a wedge between people who just wanted to see the team be competitive and people who yearned for more than competitiveness. The Flyers right now are in full off-season mode, and it's fun off-season mode. Why? Because finally they looked in the mirror, and here's where they differ from the, the Sixers. You know, some people would say the Sixers' biggest mistake was they branded their rebuild. Hey, we're going to call it the process. We're going to market the fact that we're going to suck. So that you know we're being transparent here. 
This is what we're trying to do. Get on board with us. Remember the slogan? What was it? I think it was year number one or two. Do you remember what it was? Does anybody remember what the Sixers slogan was? I think it was the 2014-15 season. Um, But they didn't hide the fact that they were basically rebuilding, tanking, losing games on purpose, whatever you want to call it. The Flyers are essentially doing what the Sixers did. They're just not going to put a banner up or hang a, you know, something from the rafters. Danny Briere isn't going to become Sam Hinkey and have Hinkyites following him around. But right now, Danny Briere is essentially made his first version of the Drew Holiday move. What did he do? Drew Holiday was a good player. He wasn't a great player. He was a borderline all-star player, and they traded him for draft picks. The Flyers have Ivan Provorov. He's a good player. He's not a great player. They traded him for draft picks. They said, we'll take a first-round pick, and we're going to start this thing over. So the Flyers have made their process move. The difference is they're just not calling it anything. And I think people saw the trade that Danny Briere made the other day and were like, I'm on board. Funny how that works. Now, if Danny Briere came out and said, we are tanking, we're losing on purpose, and we're going to start trading people, and we're going to call it the process, people might have said, well, what are you trading Ivan Provorov for? No, 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 don't do that. He's the only guy on this team that can actually play. But no. Ivan Provorov is essentially Drew Holiday. He was the first guy moved, draft picks in return, and then the next guy will turn into Evan Turner. That will be Carter Hart. The next guy will turn into Thaddeus Young. That could be Sean Couturier. And the next guy could be Spencer Hawes. And that could be uh, Kevin Hayes. You are going to slowly, maybe rapidly, see the beginning of the Flyers hitting rock bottom so that they can restock the coffers and build things back up. So Travis Konechny, he could be the next guy moved. Carter Hart, he could be the next guy moved. Kevin Hayes, he could be the next guy moved. That's what makes the offseason exciting. When your team finally takes a look in the mirror and they look at themselves and say, man, we are an ugly SOB. I need to do something with my life. I have hit rock bottom, and it is time for me to make a change. And the Sixers did it. It hasn't produced what you wanted it to produce, but at least they acknowledge it. Look, if you are somebody who is struggling in life and you acknowledge that you're struggling, just because you acknowledge it, get help, and then get past those struggles doesn't mean you might be a millionaire at the end, but at least you got your life back on track. Just because you acknowledge that you have issues, fix those issues, doesn't mean you're going from one end of the spectrum to the other where you may be struggling monetarily and you say, you know what? I'm struggling monetarily. What do I need to do? I need to get three jobs. That doesn't mean you're going to be a millionaire. Everybody thinks just because the Sixers decide that we need to do something that the end result has to be the ultimate goal. You can still be successful by not hitting being a millionaire. You could be successful by not being a millionaire 10 times over. The Flyers now have looked in the mirror and they have decided 
it is time for us to hit rock bottom. Because Chuck Fletcher looked in the mirror and said, I don't want to hit rock bottom. I want to keep running on the hamster wheel. Right? Isn't that what Chuck Fletcher tried to do? And people pushed back on that, which is funny. Because those same people didn't like what the Sixers did. But you're okay that the Flyers kept running around on the hamster wheel for 35 years? No. Danny Briere finally said, Fletcher, get out of my way and let me take this place down and burn it to the ground. So I applaud Danny Briere. I applaud the Flyers. I applaud the fact that they finally have caved in to say, we stink. And we're going to do something about it. Not, hey, we stink and we're going to try to stay in the middle to appease the people who will make fun of us anyway for being a mid-level franchise for the last 45 years, whatever it is. Right? The same guy will rip the flyers for being mediocre, but then he'll say the Sixers lost games on purpose. Funny how that works, isn't it? Do you know the slogan yet? I found one that was Together We Build. Is there that you what go. You, Together We Build. Join us. Together. You, the fans, and we, the organization, we kumbayas. Together we'll build this thing. If you support us in this venture, right? If you support us and this plan, it will go better together. So together we'll build. Like, in other words, if we lose on purpose... And we don't tell you we're losing on purpose. You're going to say, boo, you stink. You're losing. But they said, hey, we're trying to lose. Get on board with us because when we start winning, you're going to want the first seat in this building. And guess what? When's the last time the Sixers didn't sell out a game? 2017, maybe? Probably 2017. I have to double check. Together we build sounds like it works. The Flyers, on the other hand, had a lot of empty seats in that building this past year. Did they not? Sure. Place was half empty almost every single night. The Flyers really need to do what the Sixers did. They just don't need to broadcast it. They just don't need a branding slogan. They just don't need for everybody to get on board. You know why? Because the Sixers have already paved the way for people to accept its time. You know, the Sixers did the thing that everybody else is doing before everybody else did it. They just called it something. But everybody else followed suit. You know, the Houston Astros didn't just all of a sudden win World Series because they were really smart. (laughs) You know, they were losing 100 games three years consecutively. Now, the Houston Astros executed their plan better than the Phillies did. Uh, the Sixers. There's a lot of teams that have done losing multiple years purposely, and it hasn't always worked out for them, but many of them have executed it better than the Sixers did, right? We can all come together and say the Sixers have made way too many mistakes. It gives credence to just how good Joel Embiid is, that he's the only thing they really have from that entire miserable three-year stretch and that they have some ability in some people's mind to still be a championship-level franchise. Well, and I think that's the, the the problem with all of this stuff is that 
I think the one thing you left out was the the reason why this all has been looked at the way it has is because pre you know optics and perception becomes reality. And it doesn't matter if everyone is doing it. The problem is that the way the Sixers went about it, the message got hijacked. And because, as, you know, uh, Yaron Weissman talks about in his book, Taking to the Top, one of the things he talked about is that Sam Hinkie didn't care about what anybody else thought. He had a plan, and he was going to do that plan. And the problem is, is that what people have learned from watching the Sixers is you you can't just throw out slogans and you know, tell people we're tanking. You know, you got to change the presentation, like you just said. The Houston Astros bombed for about three years, and then all of a sudden they made this massive turnaround. But they didn't bomb and then have catchy slogans and have the GM not you know talk to the media almost at all. It's the idea, like, why does Howie Roseman talk as often as he does? Why does the Eagles coach talk as often? Not because they really need to. I mean, what on earth is Nick Sirianni going to say three, four days a week? It's the idea that you know that you're giving the people something to at least, you know, hang on to at times. Well, and you I have to remember, like, this is 2013 when Sam Henke gets hired. Ten years ago, um, I don't know, when was Sam hired? What was the date that Sam got hired? I'll pull it up. And when was that draft? So, ten years ago, the landscape of the sports world was way different than it is now. Analytics were just kind of infiltrating the sports world. May 14th, 2013, Sin Hinky officially introduced as Sixers team president and general manager. So he has been on the job for less than a month at this point, right? You said May 13th? May 14th. May 14th? So May 14th, 2013. So he gets hired. It's been about less than a month to June 8th, which is where we are today. So 10 years ago and about a month, Sam Henke is hired. They start this, you know, radical idea that we're basically going to trade the best players that we have who aren't all that good. They're just good enough to make us mediocre. We're going to just say, as an organization, we understand that these guys are not good enough to be what we want to be. So we're going to try to land players who have higher ceilings than these players. And if we get these players and we and we hit on them, they're going to have more talent than the guys we have, giving us better chances to win championships. That doesn't mean we're going to win the championship, but we might have multiple teams that are good enough to win the championship. Doesn't mean we will. We just might have multiple. De- right now, we know we don't have a team that's good enough to win a championship. Right. So, but the problem is, is that ago, that message got hijacked along the way. That whole message, that whole plan, that whole, hey, we got a PowerPoint presentation back in 2013, got completely graffitied and misinterpreted along the way. And what happens is nobody corrected it along as, as well. A thing my point that I was getting to is back then it got hijacked because it was so radical that you had a divide in the fan base. You had people saying, you're losing games. You play to win the games. You're losing on purpose. I can't accept that. And you had the other side saying, well, what you were doing before wasn't working. We just kept getting stuck in the middle and nobody cared about this team. So you're telling me we're going to do something different. Well, the teams that tried to do it post-Sixers 
the groundwork had already been laid and that there was a group of people, a very vocal group of people. Ownership didn't want to do something like this in the past because they were afraid that, hey, you might not come to our games if we're not good. The Sixers proved you can tell your fans you're losing because they will accept it if you're telling them you're losing for a reason. If you're just losing because you're making bad decisions, they're not going to accept that. But if you're losing because the ultimate goal is to get better players, that's a different story. There are bad teams that are just bad. The Sixers became a bad team because they were trying to obtain players that you eventually wanted to go pay for to go see. Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. I know Simmons got a, you know, his story ended up, but there was a time where people paid money because they wanted to see Joel. They wanted to see Ben. They wanted to see Nerlens Noel. They wanted to see Jaleel Okafor. The fact of the matter was after that, a team like the Houston Astros decided, hmm, look what that team's doing in the NBA. They're, they're, they gave away all their best players. So why don't we just lose for a couple of years? We're not going to win anyway. We're not winning a championship with what we had. I think the Astros lost a hundred games for three straight seasons, right? I think it was three years in a row that the Astros lost a hundred games. Now, because the Sixers did it, they didn't have to broadcast it. They didn't have to say, hey, guys, we're losing. Because the fans started to become cognizant of, well, if we're just going to win 45 games and be the seventh seed, what's the difference if we win 19 games and we're not in the playoffs? We're getting a better player, and then that better player can help us possibly get past 45 wins get us up to 55 wins, and give us a shot to win a championship. That essentially was the evolution of fans saying, I would rather be just awful than be stuck in the middle. And hence, teams like the Astros, the Cubs. You know, the Cubs won a World Series based on what? These teams won their World Series, the Astros, the Cubs, based on the fact that they had all this young homegrown talent that they yet drafted from being so bad. I will say that the Astros actually tanked before the Sixers. It was 2011, 2012, 2013. They lost 100 straight games those three straight years. Then 2014, they lost 92. They didn't have a winning record until 2015. So the Astros actually did it before the Sixers. But it's not important when the Astros did it. The fact that every team in sports has done this who's not football at some point. Yeah. You know. Well, the Astros, not- by the way... My point is this. They were bad, and people just yeah. thought they were bad. Yeah, they didn't realize that they, they were bad, bad for a reason. The Sixers being bad. They were bad because this is how the system works. Right, but say, that's the, the system point. works that you have to tank in order to get good players, in order to rebuild. Well, people would argue and say, look at Denver. Look at Miami. They're not tanking to get good players. No one said it's the only way to do it. But the only reason why it's, I see, I hate the, I hate the Miami analogy because Miami is an anomaly. Well, Miami's different. Miami is a place that can get free agents to go there. To me, it's more than that. It's a culture thing. Pat Pat Riley is not all over the league. There's not 30 Pat Rileys. There's one Pat Riley. That organization handed him the keys to everything in the late 90s and said, Pat, you do you. Well, there's the Pat Riley thing, but there's also the element that the Sixers and many organizations in the NBA don't have. It is not 
they are, Miami is a destination that players say, yes, I want to go play and live in Miami. Sure, yeah. Many places in the NBA, you are not getting LeBron James that level of player, which is the level of player of free agent you need to change your franchise. You are not Philadelphia and saying, hey, Kevin Durant is going to choose to come and play for us in free agency. So other... that that is a major, 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 major difference that a place like Miami has that a place like Milwaukee just does not have. Yes, but also Miami bombed for two different seasons to recoup a high draft pick. One of them turned out to be Dwayne Wade. That was a hit. The other time it turned out to be Michael Beasley. That was a bust. So Miami's done the the tank it and try to reset as well. The difference was is that the guy running their organization was Pat Riley, and the Sixers have been through about five different chiefs running the the uh, chefs running the kitchen. Yeah, well, that's the big problem. You know, you know, the the whole thing is the mistakes that they've made is all over the place. But the Flyers are in a spot right now where they have the beginnings of what the Sixers did. I don't know that the on-ice element is going to look as bad as the Sixers on-court element did because the Sixers only have five players on the court um, and 12 guys in, in, in total. The Flyers, you know, you could have – you're going to have a couple guys of, you know, your first-line centerman and winger and you know that are going to be competent players. I don't think you're going to see a Flyers team win – 18 games to that level, maybe. I don't know. No, they won't do that because they, they still have Tortorella there. And you could argue Tortorella got so much out of the guys this year that they should have had a worse draft pick. But because he – I mean, people forget Noah Cates, a guy that nobody knew before he came up, was never played center in his life. Tortorella turned him into a guy that people are saying he's the next Sean Gattorier. So – I don't think they're going to be so bad they're going to only win like 18, 20 games. No, but what they are doing is realizing, hey, we have a guy in Travis Konechny, or excuse me, Ivan Provorov, who's good. The problem is he isn't great. Right. Drew Holiday was a good player. The problem was he can't be your best player. I and mean, you can make a strong argument that as bad as Provorov has been, he's not so bad, but he's not good enough. And yet, he's still your best defenseman. And if that's your problem, if that's the case, if he's your best defenseman, you're essentially saying, we have a guy that we're just keeping because he's our best, but he's not really good enough to make us what we need to be, and therefore he becomes expendable. Sam Henke said, I got Drew Holiday, he's really good, but he's not good enough to take us to where we need to go, so therefore he becomes expendable. He did the same thing with Michael uh, Carter-Williams, where he said, look, this guy had a really good year. But he exceeded all expectations that we had. He won the Rookie of the Year. So you know what? This is the highest his value will ever be. And we don't think he's going to be very good. They turned out to be right about that. Michael Carter-Williams got traded and basically never turned anywhere close to the same player that he was. The problem was, you know, the Sixers traded him. That was smart. But what they got back in return, they ended up not really connecting on. Right, and I think that's where... That was that draft pick from the Lakers... That took like two years to... Two years to convey, yeah. But back to the thing with the Sixers, I think the part of the problem is that the message got hijacked. There's a lot of people who say, see all the mistakes that they made, but they ignore the fact that this is how it works in sports. You have to implode to get the great players. Almost nobody gets guys consistently in free agency unless you're a team that is a destination town 
And really, there's only about a handful of destination sports cities on the one hand. Uh, I would say this. I have never been the person that says you have to bomb out and tank to get players. That's not the only way to do it. It is certainly a way to be in the mix for higher level talent. Now, because you could say, well, Denver didn't have to tank and they got Jokic. He was in the second round. You could say Golden State didn't have to do that. And they landed a player like uh, Steph Curry with the seventh pick. They got a player like Clay Thompson later on in the first round. But you're still bad if you have a top ten pick. Yeah, but you weren't purposely bad is what the people would say. They didn't. They were just bad because they didn't have good players, not because they tried to be bad. And that's a big difference. So, yeah, I would say you don't have to go that route. But I don't see any problem with at least acknowledging we're not very good. We haven't been good since 1983. (laughs) We haven't been good since 1983. Whatever we were trying to do from 1983 to 2013 didn't work. So let's just try to do something different. And you know what? The Flyers haven't been good since the 70s. They've had a couple runs here and there. But they finally looked in the mirror and said, you know what? Maybe it's time for us to go down that road. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 2.31 on a Thursday, Phillies and Tigers scheduled for tonight. Scott Lauber from the Inquirer. Yesterday, he tweeted out, Phillies and Tigers postponed. Have we ever seen a smokeout? And will they have another one today? Washington has already canceled their game. That and more Phillies news and notes with Scott Lauber from the Philadelphia Inquirer, who joins us now here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Scott, how you been, pal? Doing well, Mike. How are you? All is good. Uh, it is uh, 2.30 on Thursday. Is uh, the anticipation uh, that they will play tonight, or is that still in question? Yeah, I mean, I think right now they're going to try, um, but... Uh, I think we're really in a, a similar spot to where we were yesterday, where Major League Baseball is keeping a close watch on the air quality uh, here and in other places as well. As you mentioned, they have already canceled or postponed tonight's game in Washington, uh, where I think the, uh, the conditions are supposed to be similar to what we experienced yesterday. So they're going to keep a watch on it and uh, and see what happens. I suspect they'll probably meet to discuss, they're looking at a lot of things. I mean, they're looking at the air quality index. They're looking at uh, the forecast for tonight. I'm not an expert on these things, but, you know, I think I think that some of what can affect the air quality is simply which way the wind is blowing. And so they're going to look at all kinds of things to see if it's safe to uh, for the players to play tonight and for the fans to be there tonight and make a call then. But my, my expectation right now is that they're going to try to play, and and uh, we'll see if that changes over the next, you know, what, three and a half hours before first pitch. Yeah, the current air quality, by the way, I can't believe I'm saying this, is 187, so it has gotten significantly better from this morning here, anyway, down the shore yeah. in Philadelphia. Could be a little different, because we did see pictures from the shore area. New York and Philly were all a lot different, and uh, they made that decision yesterday. Do they have a time frame in mind, Scott? Have they kind of said, hey, we want to make a decision, or have they not even gotten that far? Uh, that I'm not sure of. I mean, look, yesterday they had a meeting at 4 o'clock and made a decision shortly after that, so um, maybe they're on a similar timeline 
like these things change, right? Pretty dramatically um, uh, throughout the day. So I would assume that they're going to want to, as inconvenient as it might seem, right, to have, you know, I had people tweet to me yesterday like, oh, could they have waited any longer? I'm already on my way. You know, as inconvenient as it is, right, to not be able to tell fans in particular uh, early in the day that tonight's game is going to be postponed, I think they want to make these calls as close to game time as possible so that they know whether the conditions are going to remain the same or or change. So um, I would imagine relatively similar in terms of timetable to what we saw yesterday. Scott, if they play, we would imagine uh, they're going to have – uh, Kyle Schwarber back at the top of the lineup. He's been there since Friday. Uh, obviously a couple home runs. He walked three times. He hit the leadoff home run. You wrote about him the other day and a lot of people thought, Hey, left-handers, their batting averages and his average has not been great throughout his career. Uh, but it was at 160 on Friday when they moved him to the leadoff spot. He's up to 173. So why does he think that even with the shift gone, his batting average has plummeted below, well below? his career numbers. Yeah, I had a long conversation with him about it the other day and talked to Kevin Long and and Rob Thompson about it as well. And look, nobody wants to just say, hey, he's been unlucky, but he's been pretty unlucky. I mean, you look at his batting average on balls in play, it's the lowest of any uh, hitter in the league with, I think it's 200 or more plate appearances. It's well under uh, 200. Um, He has hit a lot of balls hard. He has not found a lot of holes. Uh, That includes that four hole on the right side. And it's not just you and me and fans who watch and think like, oh, no shift, and that's going to benefit Kyle Schwarber. Kevin Long and Rob Thompson both felt the same way. Nobody expected Kyle Schwarber was going to go win a batting title, but you thought, okay, he can raise his average from, you know, 230 to 250 or something like that, and uh, that hasn't happened. And, you know, some of it is luck. Some of it is just the style of hitter that that Kyle Schwarber is. He is what we call kind of a three-true-outcome guy. Almost 50% of his career plate appearances have resulted in either a home run, a walk, or a strikeout. That That's not going to suddenly change because they take the, you know, extra infielder out of shallow right field. He's still going to try to hit the ball in the air more often than not. You know, he said, look, I'm not looking to hit fly balls. I'm not looking to hit ground balls. I'm looking to hit line drives. Well, you know, when you're, you know, when you do that and, you know, line drives are ideal, but yeah, he's, he's looking to hit the ball in the air more than on the ground. And when you've been trained to do that, you're not suddenly going to get a bunch of hits on the ground through the four hole. So they are actually trying to work with him on flattening his swing a little bit, maybe putting the ball in play a little bit more to the right side when he can. But I do wonder, just you know, in watching him and talking to him and talking to the people around him, whether he's ever going to really benefit greatly from the removal of that extra defender because he's just not that kind of hitter who takes advantage of that sort of thing. Yeah, Scott Lauber from the Inquirer, a really good piece about uh, Schwarber. Now, I don't know, do you have any indication from him? Does he just like hitting leadoff? There's so many questions from people. Why is Schwarber leadoff? And I guess it's just... He doesn't look like a leadoff in all his home runs. and But is that an area that he just feels more comfortable? Did he go to them? Did they just say you're hitting there? How did that kind of reformulate? He does feel comfortable there. Um, he struggles to kind of explain why. As much as he struggles to explain why in June he turns into Babe Ruth 
Um, he can't really explain that either, and and it's just something that sort of has happened over his career. But Kyle Schwarber has literally hit in every spot in the batting order in his career, one through nine. He has hit everywhere. Um, he is not uncomfortable hitting anywhere, I don't think. Uh, he, he will hit fifth, as he hit earlier this year. He will hit first. Uh, they sort of went to him a week or so ago with the with the idea of moving him back. Not so much to ask him what he thought, but Rob Thompson just saying, "Look, how would you feel if I did this?" You know, he for for as much as he is not getting hits per se, he is still drawing a lot of walks, and he has been drawing walks even in May when he was struggling and the hits weren't falling for him and he was striking out a lot. Was still as as tough in that bat just from a walk standpoint and from a making the pitcher work standpoint as they have in their lineup. So uh, they, they, you know, they talked to him about moving back up to that leadoff spot. He's always up for doing that because he does enjoy hitting up there. And I do think it's, it's got something to do with kind of his strike zone awareness and his uh, willingness to, to draw a walk. And, you know, Nick Castellanos, for example, is not somebody you'd want to bat leadoff because he's an aggressive hitter. He likes to swing at the first pitch quite often. Um, when he gets a pitch early in that bat, he's not going to pass it up. Schwarber, uh, it's it's a lot more of a uh, of a grind of an at bat for the pitcher. So there are, uh, even though he does not look or run or sort of uh, act in many ways like a prototypical leadoff hitter, there are leadoff hitting qualities there that they like. And oh yeah, he can occasionally pop one like he did the other night uh, in the game uh, Tuesday night against the Tigers. So. Uh, more than occasionally, he pops one quite often. So, um, you know, I think, you know, look, Thompson looks at what happened last year, and really they took off when Schwarber went in the leadoff spot and got hot in June, and they're hoping that maybe history repeats this year. Uh, Scott, you know, that brings us to Turner, who, you know, went four for five, a couple home runs, and then he proceeded to go for the next two nights. But my question more is, what if he does get hot do you just keep him in the four hole? Do they envision him as a middle of the lineup guy? Would they rather him go back to the top of the lineup? I mean, is that going to be another, like, if it, let's just say he does get going, do you say, Hey, he got going. We don't want to move him. Or do they hope and envision that he is back into the top part of the order at some point? So no one has said it, but I do think that they're hoping he gets hot and they can move him back to the two hole. I think they like him in the two hole quite a bit. Um, whether it's behind Schwarber, whether it's behind Stott. Um, I think they like Turner in that two-hole. They think he's ideally suited there. Good guy to have between Schwarber and Harper uh, in that he bats right-handed and can kind of split those two guys up. So I think that is their ultimate where they would like Turner to end up. Now, um, if he gets hot in the four-hole or five-hole uh, somewhere closer to the middle, do they leave him there? I think that sort of depends, too, on what's going on at the top of the order. Um, Nick Castellanos has swung a really good bat here for a while now and also profiles as an interesting two-hole hitter. You know, he's talked a lot about batting in the two-hole or three-hole when he was with Detroit, when he was with Cincinnati, and how he feels like he gets pitched differently when he has when he's in a, a spot like that and he has a Miguel Cabrera or a Joey Votto or a Bryce Harper hitting behind him. He thinks that, look, if you've got a hitter of that quality behind him, uh, they don't want to put him on base to pitch to that guy, uh, and so he'll get more pitches to hit, maybe more pitches in the strike zone. And He is an aggressive hitter, and the more pitches in the strike zone, the more swings he's going to take, the less chasing he's going to do. So there are advantages to having him there too. 
Ultimately, though, I'd like, I think they'd like Turner to gravitate back toward the two hole, uh, maybe slide Castellanos back toward the four hole, uh, cleanup spot and get back to kind of the order that they envisioned when the season started. But look, I mean, if we know anything, if the first 60 games have shown us anything, it's that, you know, plans change and, uh, give Rob Thompson credit, I suppose, for not sticking to what he wants to do just because he's going to be stubborn and stick with it, but rather, making adjustments and sort of trying to figure out how to kickstart the lineup however however they can. Yeah, Scott Lauber from the Inquirer covered the Phillies. They'll play uh, the Tigers tonight trying to sweep that series. And to do so, uh, you need Wheeler, who, you know, the starting pitching has seemingly pitched pretty well except for that one Friday night when Wheeler threw. But is there a sense that the starting pitching is finally kind of, you know, the pitch clock and, you know, they threw a lot of innings and all that stuff. But you got Suarez back. Walker threw well. Nola had a game. Does it feel like the starting pitching is kind of, at least the four guys, we don't know what they're going to do with that fifth spot, but does the starting pitching seem like it is stabilizing itself? Maybe. I mean, let's (laughs) see it happen more than once through. Um, But, you know, look, this is kind of what they envision. Like, look, for as inconsistent as they've been, they really can't blame injuries the way, like, let's say the Mets can. Right, The Mets can say, well, we didn't have Verlander and Scherzer together for a long stretch of time. For the most part, I mean, I know they didn't have Harper for 30 games, and I know Suarez missed six weeks, but for the most part, relatively speaking, compared to other clubs, the Dodgers, for instance, the Mets, the Phillies have been relatively healthy. So now they've got Suarez back. They've got their top four in place, their top four starters, Wheeler, Nola, Suarez, Walker, and... You know, that's the formula for the Phillies to, to, to run off 16 out of 20 or 18 out of 22 or something like that that they need to do to really climb back into the driver's seat in terms of a wild card spot, maybe even in terms of the division. They need those four to lead the way. Now, you know, Nola's been inconsistent. Um, you know, two bad starts in a row against the Braves and Mets. Then he pitched great the other night against Detroit. Walker has been more bad than good. Pitched really well the other night against Detroit. It's Detroit. Their lineup's not good. Let me see them do it against the Dodgers over the weekend, and you'll start to think, well, maybe now we're cooking with gas. So we'll see what happens Um, the next time through the rotation. I think it's going to be a a tougher test. But, you know, much like they talk about Turner and Real Muto and Schwarber, and they say, well, look at the back of the baseball card. These guys have been productive hitters in the past, and they will be again. They're saying the same about those top four starters, and that's really what they need. They need the rotation to get on a roll in order to get on a roll as a team. Well, and it was at this time last year, I'm I'm sure they're maybe, I don't know, are they tired of hearing all the comparisons to last year and last year and last year and last year? They were about the same record, and it was right about this point where they won those nine games in a row, and they're in the midst of a five uh, four-game win streak with possibly five straight here. Is there a sense that, hey, we're it's not last year, we're tired of hearing it last year, or are they kind of clinging to, hey, we got off to, I know uh, Thompson commented that the last couple World Series winners, you know, did not get off to great starts. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's somewhere in the middle, um, and it's a lame answer, right? But like, I think it's somewhere in the middle because I think they can grab onto last year and say, "Look, we were in this spot a year ago, and it's not going to be easy. It wasn't easy last year, but we proved to ourselves we can do it. Let's do it again." Um, at the same time, I don't think they want to lean on that, and I don't think that they want to lean on the fact that, "Hey, look, it happened last year. It'll all be okay." I think they want to be more, you know, have 
a little bit more urgency in the moment than that. And also, look, last year's last year, you know. I mean, at some point you have to let last year go and play in this season and figure it out in 2023. Um, you know, I've, I've made that point in stories uh, recently that the, the 2019 Nationals and the 2021 Braves, uh, and of course last year's Phillies, so three of the last four National League pennant winners all started poorly. I think the Nats were famously like 19 and 31, and the Braves team was like 30 and 35. So, I mean, it's it's been the trend in the last few years that, you know, a team that has started slow has come on and made the playoffs and gone on a run. But it's not going to happen every year. It doesn't happen every year. That's what makes those examples um, so so singular is that um, it even though it's been the norm lately, it is not the historical norm. So eventually we're going to see a team kind of go wire to wire, like, you know, team like the Dodgers or the Braves are going to go wire to wire and, and win the NL pennant. Uh, but you know, look, there, there is a, um, there is a history of that happening. I think the Phillies think it's a positive thing that they can channel what they did last year into, uh, what they're trying to do again this year. And, um, and if they can hold on to that and, and take from that experience, great, but a new year is a new year and new challenges. And, uh, you got to kind of, uh, uh, you know, figure it out in the here and now. Yeah, everything's different, everything's new, but we always like to try to compare 29 and 32, comparable to where they were, but you're right, they got to start playing some better baseball, and they've won four straight, looking to make it five tonight. Zach Wheeler looking to uh get back on the winning track after a tough loss Friday night. He did not pitch well in that game against the Nationals. Scott Lauber thinks they'll play. We'll see. It's 247 on Thursday, and the air quality yeah. in Philly yeah. seems Check with me in another hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, at Scott Lauber on Twitter. And check out his piece on Kyle Schwarber, all the people that text me about him hitting leadoff. Scott has a really good conversation with uh, Schwarber that you can read over at Inquire.com. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. Uh, good to catch up with Scott Lauber on the day where the Phillies looking to make it five straight. Zach Wheeler on the mound. Reese Olsen, I think, is uh, pitching for the Tigers today. If you've never heard of him, I don't blame you. Neither have I. The Tigers have run out three guys no one's heard of, and the Phillies have proceeded to score a bunch of runs in this series. I would hope that gets going again tonight. If the Phillies lineup is out, we'll get it to you shortly on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Speaking of the Phils, where do the national pundits look at this team right now? Let's take a look at ESPN.com's MLB Power Rankings to see if the Phillies are in the middle, the bottom half, or do people actually think, hey, their record's not good, but they're better than you think. We'll take a look at the Power Rankings coming up next on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3. Now, back Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, 2.53, Michael Kasky, Blomain, going to talk a little Sixers and NBA coming up at the 3 o'clock hour. I'm Mike Hill. This is the Sports Bash. ESPN.com Power Rankings for MLB. I was interested in this for two reasons. One, did you realize that Tampa Bay is 45 and 19? And I bring that up for this reason. We just talked about what Rob Thompson said the other day, that the last four World Series winners had not been off to a good start in 
the regular season. You know, the Nationals in 2019, they were 19 and 31 or something to that effect. You had the Braves uh, that were about where the Phillies are in 2021. Last year's Phillies team didn't win the World Series, but they made it to the World Series. I think he said the last four National League entrants uh, was the thing he said. So since 2018, every National League team that has won the pennant, the lead, the pennant, thank you. They all had a losing record going into June. There you go. So Tampa Bay being 45 and 19. How many people think that because they're 45 and 19 that they are definitively winning the World Series because of how good they are on June 8th? I don't because I've seen it too many times not happen. Right. So when you are the guy who wants to say the Phillies aren't good enough, look at their record, then ask the question, well, look at the other guy's record, 45 and 19. They are the number one team in the power rankings. Do you think Tampa Bay is the favorite to win the World Series? They might be the favorite in Vegas, but do you like them as the best team? Do you think the Texas Rangers at 40 and 21, they are ranked number two in the power rankings. Are they a team that you think is ready to win a World Series? Number three in the power rankings is Atlanta. They are 37 and 24. Houston, 10 games over 500, 36 and 26. The Dodgers, 35 and 27. Baltimore, I like that Baltimore team a lot. Here's the thing, though. The Yankees are seven. Arizona is eight. Tampa Bay is nine. Minnesota at 500, 31 and 31. They are number 10. Remember, 12 teams have to get in the playoffs. Boston is 31 and 31. They are number 11. Then you've got Milwaukee at 12. The Mets at 13. Miami at 14. Pittsburgh at 15. Seattle at 16. The Angels at 17. The Padres at 18. This is the interesting part, is that the Phillies are at number 19. So they are saying, we're looking at 29 and 32, and we kind of believe that that's where you are right now. So there's a story in itself right there. They've got to start getting better, and they've won four in a row. Can they get five tonight against the Tigers? We'll keep our eye on the lineup. Next hour here on the Sports Bash. Oh, the lineup is out. I got it in front of me. I'll give it to you. Coming up. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Just after three, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN down the Jersey Shore on a Thursday. Air quality 187 is the number I'm giving you. (laughs) Air quality update provided by, I'm just kidding. Um, Philly's lineup is out, same as yesterday. So they're going to run it right back with that lineup. It's brought to you by Clark's Moving and Storage. My friend's down at Clark's in Rio Grande. 609-889-0780. 609-889-0780. Offering a wide variety of residential and commercial moving services. We'll get that uh, for you coming up in about 20 minutes from now. But right now, my man MKB, Michael Kasky Blomain from CBS Sports is here to talk a little Sixers, talk a little NBA Finals. And he joins us right now on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. MKB, what's up, my brother? Mm, I do not hear MKB. MKB, you are muted. Uh, he is muted. I don't know that he can hear me. Maybe he can't hear me. I don't know, but uh, we'll try to get him. There he is. Oh, I see his face now. That is a uh, you got a shave. My man got a shave, man. You went on uh, like a sabbatical and shave. Can you hear me? Nope, he is not hearing me. I do see him though. He's got a shave. He's got a clean look. He's uh, he's looking good. 
Uh, he's trying to. No, I do not hear you. Your mic is on mute. That is one issue. Yeah, your mic is on mute. Can I unmute him there? Yep. Uh, there we go. There we go. There we go. Now we got him. What's up, Mike? You got this clean shaven look there. Yeah, summer summertime. You know, <laughs> gotta gotta drop the hair. You coming down the shores anytime soon? Stay cool. Yeah, my buddy's bachelor party is in a few weeks down in AC, actually. Oh, nice, nice. All right, well, yeah. AC. Uh, all right, MKB, let's start with the finals before we do some Sixer stuff here. I mean, just kind of, you know, watching this final last night, everybody was kind of thinking that the Nuggets were in charge. They they looked like they were, um, you know, at home. Then they lose game two, and it almost felt like, man, the Heat are just tougher, you know, and they're just shooting the ball so well. Did last, I had the Nuggets in five. Last night makes me feel good about that again. Did the Nuggets re-wrestle the momentum and everything back last night? Do we think this is going to be a seesaw? Yeah, I think they did, Mike, and I agree with you. I had Nuggets in six, I believe, for my official prediction for CBS. And to me, it just comes down to the, the firepower. I got the Heat just don't have the weapons on the offensive end. I feel like to keep up with, with Denver. And, you know, they play hard and the heat culture and all that, and that got them this far. But I think, you know, ultimately you kind of hit a wall against a team like the Nuggets in the finals. And I think maybe they might be able to squeak out another game. They'll obviously come out desperate tomorrow night. They don't want to drop both games in Miami, don't want to fall down 3-1. So I wouldn't be shocked if it goes to 2-2. But ultimately I just think Denver has too much depth, too much size, too much offensive firepower for Miami to be able to really push this to like a seven-game series or something like that. When you're watching this series, you know, so many times you watch these games in the last couple – and you say – my team, the Sixers in this instance for our audience, are so far away from X team. Do you watch this series and say the Sixers aren't in the same league in terms of where they are in their you know build to a championship than these two teams? Or do you think that they are a lot closer than maybe most fans think because they keep getting knocked out in the second round? Yeah, I think they're roster-wise a lot closer than what you would think, Mike. I think they would be able to give either of these teams a, a, a good series, you know, the Heat or the Nuggets. To me, it comes down to that leadership at the top, and that's where the Sixers continue to just keep hitting a wall. I don't know. <clears throat> Maybe they need another guy alongside Joel to be, you know, on court as the leader. Maybe Joel just doesn't have it in him, like, you know, a Jokic or a Butler or a Giannis to like really kind of will his team over the top in these tough situations. But I think the Sixers, and that's been the case for the past few years, barring the Al Horford season where they were swept, that they've been to me good enough to compete roster wise with any team really in the league. But their stars at the end of the day just haven't been able to push them over the hump like we've seen some other, you know, some of the other teams do. Michael Kasky, Blomain, CBS Sports, uh, over at CBSSports.com. Uh, you wrote about James Harden currently, quote, torn between the Sixers and Rockets in free agency. Now, this seems to also be somewhat of a seesaw. I think you're going to kind of say, all right, here's today's news of the day on Harden. We have a month to go here. So why would Harden be torn? What is your reading the tea leaves on this one? To me, it's just all about the freedom that he had in Houston. I think like he, you know, from 2012 to was it 2021 when he was down there he ran the show on the floor he ran the show off the floor you know he was had the ball he did whatever he wanted and clearly the organization let him do you know whatever he wanted off the floor in Houston which to an extent it seemed like was the case here in Philly Doc let him go to Vegas in between those playoff games and everything like that 
But I think there's a draw for him to go back to being the singular brightest star in Houston where he was comfortable and was able to give, you know, had all this leeway to do things that he wanted both on the floor and off the floor. And as good as he played in Philly along with Joel Embiid, that was never, I don't think, you know, his preferred role as the secondary guy, a playmaker. He accepted it. He was really good at it throughout the course of the season. But I think he still feels like he's the guy you know, in his head, the guy that should be the A1 that has the ball in his hands. So, you know, it's going to come down to, he's said time and again that he wants the opportunity to compete and be on a team that, you know, can compete for titles at this later stage in his career. On paper, you would say that the Sixers are certainly more closer to that than Houston. But at the end of the day, you know, is that really what he wants? I think that's what it will come down to. Right. I mean, if, if he's saying he's torn and he's saying he wants to compete, as you wrote about over at CBSSports.com, I mean, there's really no decision here right i mean right now as we sit here today on june 8th now i know he's in a weird spot because there's been some talk yeah they could spend a lot of money houston they're gonna go after like a brooke lopez they're gonna go out and get like a dylan i mean it it seems that it would he have to wait to see what houston's gonna do before he makes a decision to go there and then what does that mean for philly yeah like you said barring a, you know, pretty substantial roster makeover in Houston. They're, you know, several years away from true contention. Like the timelines there just don't add up in terms of James Harden's 33. You know, this, the Rockets team is completely comprised of rookies, second year guys, third year guys that are going to be good, but that just aren't there. So it doesn't, you know, on paper that way, it doesn't make sense. And like you said, <clears throat> unless he was just willing to go to Houston, regardless of the roster, like if it wasn't a basketball decision, which to me, if he does sign with Houston, I feel like basketball would be a secondary decision. Money obviously will be a big factor into it. I think you have to keep in mind that this is probably not guaranteed, but probably his last chance to sign like a really substantial multi-year deal. I think, you know, at 33, probably already showing some signs of decline. He's probably not going to be in position to sign another big deal two, three, four years down the road. So I think this is his last chance to get a, you know, a substantial multi-year deal. And that's a huge factor too. If Houston is willing to do spend that money for years, a lot of, a lot of money, I think the Sixers would have some pause with that. And that could also obviously end up being a, a deciding factor for him. Um, what do you think, Michael, the mindset is from the Sixers? Because the, as you wrote, they're in a tough spot, but you let him walk. Where are they? If you bring them back, are you any closer? Like, are they in the mindset of if we let him walk, you know, we take, you know, maybe two steps back or one step back to take two forward, or do we just try to do it again with a different coach? Is that kind of where they are with this decision right now? Yeah, from everything I've I've heard, Mike, I think there's a little bit of pause to commit long term. Like, I think that the organization would be completely happy with running it back for a year for two years even maybe with James Harden under, like you said, a new coach and Nick Nurse, new schemes, a little, you know, potentially better success in the playoff, things like that. I think the issue and the sticking point for them might come and, you know, if he's looking for that fully guaranteed, like a four-year deal or a three-year with a player option, something like that, is that a situation that the Sixers really want to commit to, you know, a player at this point in time? I think, you know, that's probably the biggest question. If he was willing to do another a deal like he did last summer a one and one or even maybe a potentially a two and one i think the Sixers would be amicable to that but if you know if he is really sticking to that four-year long-term deal 
you, I think at that point you got to potentially cut your losses. Like you said, maybe take a step back in the short term, but not necessarily. You could open up other, you know, other opportunities, not signing him, trading potentially Tobias. I think obviously James not being there would give Tyrese Maxey more of an opportunity to kind of blossom in his role, have the ball in his hands more. So I don't think the Sixers feel like they are doomed necessarily if James Harden leaves, but it is kind of a catch 22 situation where you can't immediately replace that production, you know, that he brought at, at the same time if he does walk away. So it is a little bit of a tough, you know, uh, predicament they find yeah. themselves in. They are. I mean, it's like a no-win situation. You keep them, it feels like you're – I mean, if you keep them, it doesn't mean that you, you can't compete for a championship. It just feels like you know the answer to the test already. And if right. you don't keep them, it feels – and and that's another problem. I don't know where the front office or what, what ownership thinks is – if you run it back with just a new coach, are you going to begin to get apathy from the fan base? I mean, the fan base already went through a regular season where it was like, hey, I'll only believe in this team if you get out of the second round. Well, they failed to do that again. Are you going to go through another 82-game season with the same exact cast of characters again? I don't, I don't think you can, uh, Mike. But at the same time, I think that apathy is going to be there until, you know, as long as this is a Joel Embiid-led team. I mean, they still sell out every night, though, right? Yeah, the interest is is still going to be no matter what people say on Twitter. The interest is going to be there, and they're going to be in the conversation next year, regardless, as long as you have a healthy Joel Embiid. But I think he's kind of gotten to the point. Not that he's been vilified at all. I'm not saying that, but a lot of the mistrust or the apathy that you were discussed, I think, is at this point with Joel, where you know he's been he hasn't been able to prove that he can get this team let you know to the conference finals let alone to the nba finals where we've seen you know guys that he's consistently mentioned with the Giannis, the jokic you know kevin durant other guys at the top of the of the league do it so i think until the fan base sees that joel can be the guy that leads a team regardless of who he has around him or regardless of who the coach is until joel really does that I think there's still going to be questions among the fan base, regardless of all the pieces around him. Um, Let me ask you about Tobias. You brought him up. Any thought on how good of a possibility that move is? It seems like that is the one move that Maury, you know, a couple years ago, how are you going to trade Horford? He figured that out. They traded Richardson. Is Harris the most logical move because of where his contract finally is uh, that that could get done finally this offseason? Yeah, I think so, Mike. And that's the main move. I mean, that's in terms of them at least changing the roster, let alone improving it. I think that's your best option. They're really limited in terms of salary cap space. They don't have tons of assets or young players or draft picks that would be enticing otherwise you have this one contract that's finally you know valued because it's going to be an expiring deal that lets you lets the a team reset the books next summer uh and and lose all that cap space i think finally it's attractive and i think the sixers are already from what i've heard you know maybe not actively calling but certainly open to the idea of looking into a Tobias Harris trade. And I would expect, you know, over the next two and a half weeks now leading up to um, draft night, that that's going to be a big topic because Maury's been here now for three drafts and two of those drafts last year was the, uh, the trade with the Grizzlies that brought Melton. The first year was the, the Horford Danny green thing on, on draft night. So he's big into making moves on draft night. And that's to me, like you said, the most logical one that, that the Sixers could do to really, at least change the roster up for next season. Yep. Uh, Michael Kasky, Blomain, CBS Sports. Uh, that's something to keep an eye on. And then how about last night? This kind of uh, came out of nowhere. Uh, the Suns and uh, uh, Chris Paul 
essentially parting ways. They're, they're going to waive him. Um, does he become an intriguing possibility? Not to me, Mike, honestly. I saw a lot of people saying that. To me, it just doesn't fit the mold. The Sixers need a guy that can carry a heavy load and help Joel out and do it over the course of a season in the postseason. And, you know, at this point in his career, Chris Paul has shown that he's not a, an 82 plus 16 guy. Injury issues consistently every postseason. The, obviously, the veteran experience and his ability to stabilize an offense and when he's out on the floor, it would be great. But I just think that bringing another guy in, a, you know, the older stage of his career, we did that with Harden. The th- all along, the Sixers have failed to surround Joel. I mean, they got Maxi now, but with, you know, young guard, you look at the Jamal Murray pick and how great he's blossomed in Denver alongside, uh, Jokic and, and other guys like throughout, like young guards in the league. Sixers have never had that. And I just think going with a no- guy on the other end of the spectrum would be a mistake. Not to mention the history between Chris Paul and Murray. I think it's safe to say that Chris Paul is not the, the biggest fan of Daryl <laughs> Murray after his tenure in Houston. Um, so, uh, you know, if he, if it was up to Chris, I, I don't think it would be his top choice to reunite uh, with Daryl Morey either. Yeah. It, you know, when that happens, of course, always the Philadelphia fan always says, oh, we got to get this guy. We gotta, and I think to myself, man, here's just another guy that people would complain about for two reasons. One, because he's broken down and always hurt, it seems, in the playoffs. And two, has also been a guy who has been kind of known for his playoff failures more than his playoff success, right? Yeah, like best case scenario – it would be a good fit, but there's too many factors from, like you said, age, injury issues, playoff struggles that just make it, to me, not not the best move for them to pursue. Michael Caskey-Blomain, CBS Sports, the NBA Finals tomorrow night. Right back at it. I like the fact that there's only the one day off here. Uh, Jimmy Butler, obviously, last night didn't have it. This team, are they finally running out of shots? They are making everything, man. This team has made everything for... Almost two months now. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think you're finally starting to see that shooting variance kind of come back down to earth. They were, I don't, maybe the worst three point shooting team in the league during the regular season. Definitely bottom, bottom five. And then they've been the best three point shooting team. I've never really seen a team kind of switch their MO and their DNA so much from the regular season to the postseason. And I think at this point, like we were saying earlier, Denver just has too much firepower. And, you know, Miami has a lot of good guys, but they're role players. And you're starting to see, you know, unless Jimmy's doing a crazy output and heavy lifting, which he hasn't been able to do so far this series, the Heat just don't have enough to, Michael, to keep up. They scored 109 points a game in the regular season. Dead last in the NBA. Yeah. Dead last behind Detroit, behind Houston, behind Charlotte, Orlando. I mean, they were the worst offense of scoring team in the entire league this year and they were bottom five as you mentioned they were fourth worst three-point shooting team in the yep. entire nba the completely fourth flipped it worst in the it, it, it's yeah. unbelievable i mean they shoot 49 percent the other night to win that game in denver and this is the you know it's one of these things where we talk about all the time about how regular season and all the stuff is getting thrown out like the how little these regular seasons translate sometimes this team went can you imagine you know, we all talk about Spolstra and how great of a coach he is. Can you imagine if Spolstra was in Philly and won 44 games? I mean, people would want the guy fired. 
Yeah, absolutely. The, the hashtag fire Spolster would have been trending for, yeah. for weeks now at this point. But no, I mean, that's another thing that I think you see other organizations do. And of course, I'm not saying the Sixers were wrong and moving on from Doc Rivers, but Mike Malone coaching the Nuggets has been there for eight years. I believe the only coach that Murray has had is coach Jokic this whole time. Spolstra, you know, started with the, the Heatles, lost that finals to Dallas in, in 2011. And there was a lot of people at that point calling for his him to be fired when they lost that. Pat Riley and the Heat stuck with him, and, you know, he's still the coach. So I think there is something to be said for stability, uh, you know, in the NBA, and that's something I think moving forward, hopefully at least the Sixers could try to emulate. Michael Kasky, Blomain, CBS Sports. The NBA Finals are right here on 97.3 ESPN. Check out his NBA coverage over at cbssports.com. And, of course, follow him on Twitter at the real Mike KB. MKB. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Mike. Good talking to you. Yeah, man. Always good. Michael Kasky, blow me. Good basketball conversation. Sixers, as he mentioned, the one thing to keep an eye on is Tobias Harris. Can Daryl Morey do what Morey did on draft night a couple weeks ago, a couple years ago, I should say, two drafts ago, when he was able to move Al Horford, when he was able to move Jason Richard, Josh Richardson, uh, Jason Richardson, Josh Richardson, Josh Richardson, Jason Richardson was here. Uh, in the process years, uh, J- Jason Richardson was the dunker. Josh Richardson was uh, the guy who couldn't shoot. <laughs> he got traded for Seth Curry. Uh, but that's the kind of deal that you're hoping that he'll be able to get. You know, one of those deals where someone says, I'll take Tobias's contract. They got Curry back. Not the right Curry, but a good Curry, not a great Curry. They got Curry back for Richardson. Can they do that with uh, Tobias, where they trade him and get a player, you know, like a Buddy Heald, that level of player, who, you know, people like Buddy Heald. He shoots the three, but he's not a guy who's going to help you win the championship as the best player on the team. But I think one thing the Sixers need to find if you're watching these playoffs with these teams, these this championship, these finals, is the Sixers don't have those guards that can shoot. Right, Their shooting comes from guys who don't have mobility. They're catch-and-shoot guys. They're guys who just catch in the corner and shoot from the corner. They are, you know, this, you know, you watch what the, the Heat have going on, um, guys who can, even like the guys who, uh, Struess and um, Duncan Robinson, those are guys who, man, the Sixers just don't have that level of player on the team that can give you more. Like Niang, he can shoot, but he just can't give you the minutes because he can't do anything else. So I think they got to find some guards, more athletic shooters. And I got a trade like that where you can trade maybe, I don't know what Heald makes, but he seems to be the guy who gets bounced all over the place now. That level of type of player. Sports Bash, uh, I was going to say Saturday. No, it's not Sports Bash Saturday. Sports Bash Thursday. Thankfully, uh, we got the Phils back tonight, it looks like. Lineup is out. We'll get that for you. We'll set that up for you on the other side. We also, later on in the show, we'll talk to Bob Wankel about this Phillies team. Where does he see the team a week after we spoke on Friday? They move short to the leadoff spot. Is that set in stone? Is that going to be where he hits the rest of the way? That's tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, also, the Live Golf PGA thing that happened on Tuesday. Albert Breer had a speculation that I saw 
that I think is very interesting to discuss. Plus, the Vikings are expected to do something with their four-time Pro Bowl running back. Football at four. Eagles on the field today. More Sports Bash coming up. 97.3 ESPN, the free mobile app. Now, back Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Let's do it. Uh, let me open up the text board. I haven't really checked in on that all day. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. Text board. If you're listening on the free mobile app, you can message us through the app on your phone. I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Fast Live on 97.3 ESPN. Uh, Philly's lineup is out. It's brought to you by Clark's Moving and Storage. Uh, the lineup is the same as yesterday. It is exactly the same as yesterday, actually. Uh, they didn't change anything. So the Phillies rolling out. The same lineup today as they did yesterday, which means you're going to get Schwarber back in the leadoff spot. Castellanos at two, Harper three, Turner four, Real Muto five, Stott is six, Marsh is seventh, Clements is eight, Harrison is at third base and hitting ninth, and then uh, Wheeler is your pitcher tonight. I like the Phillies. They say, okay, let's try to close out the series for real this time, uh, and the Phillies will go with that lineup tonight. Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, Real Muto, Stott, Marsh, Clements, Harrison, Wheeler. You know, um, I didn't think they were going to change the lineup. The only thing I thought maybe could have been different is if they wanted to, you know, say, hey, we had the day off yesterday, so instead of playing Harrison, we play, you know, Sosa, but I, you know, not surprised that they went with the same lineup here. So you're getting Harrison. You know, Harrison's a guy. Uh, Frank has been on the show. Frank Close, our Phillies insider, um, has been on the show a bunch and talked about how the Phillies had Harrison before. You know, people forget Harrison was on this team a couple of years ago and asked for his release. And that season, it wasn't like he went somewhere and just bombed out. He has been pretty bad for the Phillies this year. But I think that was 2021. It was after the COVID season, I want to say. And he ended up, was it was it the COVID season? Or it might have been the COVID. Like, was it 2020 that Harrison was here? Do you remember? No. I'm double-checking right now, actually. He, uh, he was here, the Phillies had him, and then they released him. But... Back in 2020. I thought it was 2020, but I'm double-checking just to be sure. In 2020, he played in Washington. He had 278. And that was in 33 games. He had three home runs. In 2021, he played for Washington. He had 294 in 90 games. So here's what happened. So he signed before the COVID pandemic hit in the offseason, before the 2020 season. The Phillies released him. On July 21st, before they actually played any games with him. Yeah, he asked to be released. Right, and then he would sign with the Nationals six days later. Right, so he ended up, the Nationals in 2020 hit 278. In 2021, he hit 294. He went to Oakland in 2020. He got traded to Oakland in 2021. Correct. He ended up hitting 254 there. Last year in Chicago with the White Sox, 256 with seven home runs in 119 games. I mean, he's been somewhat of a serviceable player right now. 206. He's just not a serviceable player. Now, keep in mind, Harrison is not a young player. He's a guy that, you know, at some point you just, the sand runs out of the hourglass. But he is a career 
271 hitter. This is a guy uh, that has been a pretty decent, you know, batting average guy. Right now, 206, not good. Uh, not that I'm expecting anything from Harrison, but if you're saying like, hey, how come Harrison keeps getting some at-bats here? They're trying to see if he can become a serviceable player that he has been the last couple of years. I don't see it. Um, but look, they don't have a lot of options. Is, is Harrison in the lineup at nine uh, any different than hitting Sosa in that spot? I mean, Sosa, I think, gives you a little extra, you know, pop, a little more speed, but neither one of these guys are great options right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Harrison is getting this playing time if there wasn't these injuries. I think that's the, the, that's the part people have to keep in mind. The Phillies are not saying, man, we really want to play this Josh Harrison. No, they're saying, Hoskins is down for the year. Boehm is out indefinitely. We got to play somebody. Who's the best option? Yeah, well, your options are Cody Clements, Drew Ellis, Edmundo Sosa, really, to play third base right now because you don't have Boehm. I don't know what the deal with Boehm is. Again, we, we talked about him the other day. He's got this hamstring problem, and, you know, hamstrings could be tough. Apparently, I think according to Lauber, that Boehm – had been taking some grounders back out on the field, so at least he's yeah. like doing something. He's doing something, right? We don't know what. But swinging what that the back could be a challenge. Yeah, we we don't know what that means long term for him because you know hamstrings are a little are always tricky. Boom has been out by the way since uh, June first, so he has not even served his ten days yet. So he still has a couple more days to do that. Now retroactive to May thirty first, so he's getting close. But I have not seen really any updates on him. But as far as the lineup tonight, no surprise with Schwarber still in the top. And we talked to Scott earlier. He talked about the Phillies wanting to possibly get Turner. And I don't know if you guys, whoever's listening right now, brought this up at the 530 segment last night. Do the Phillies really want Turner hitting number four? So as I asked that to Scott today, and he talked about how they would like to see the Phillies like him at number two. And that they would like to see him get back to the number two spot in the lineup. And Castellanos, you know, is hitting two right now. And it seems that for the foreseeable future, and that could be, look, they moved Schwarber to the leadoff hole a couple weeks ago and hit him there four games and then moved him out. If Turner can get himself, like, it's like, hey, Turner, do you want to hit four or do you want to hit two? And if he's like, well, I really want to hit two, well, I got a great way for you to hit two. Hit well enough that I can get you out of the four hole and move you back to where you belong. Until you show me you can get there. And right now, he had four for five, two home runs, and then he followed up with a couple of for threes. Not good. So, Trey Turner, you kind of control your own destiny here, I would say, in this one. His last seven days, he's played six games. He's got seven hits, seven for 25, two home runs. But the strikeouts are still there. He's got six strikeouts and six games played, still striking out almost every single night. He's got to cut that down. You know, one thing with, with Trey Turner that has been kind of mind-boggling with this whole thing is the amount of strikeouts that he has had. You know, he has 65 strikeouts in 60 games. He struck out the most he's ever struck out in a season. He struck out 132 times uh, back in Washington in a 162-game season. So right now... He is on pace to kind of blister that number. I mean, he's on pace. You double, he's at 60. So you double the 60, 120. He's at one, he's at, he's over 130 strikeouts in 120 games. His high is 132. He's on pace to strike out like 160 times this year. That would obliterate 
how many times he has struck out in a season. So that is concerning uh, to see the strikeout numbers. The the RBI numbers, he has 19 RBI. 19. He had 100 ribbies last year. 100. He's got 19. I mean, this is like the Castellanos thing all over again. I mean, Castellanos in Cincinnati, we talk about you know, 315, 30 home runs, 100 RBI. He comes here and hits 268 with 13 homers. You're like, are you kidding me? You're getting essentially a carbon copy contract signing here. You sign a guy who hit 298 with 20 home runs and 100 ribbies, and by the way, he threw in 27 stolen bases last year. You're not getting any of that stuff right now from Trey Turner. This has been one of the most maddening signings that I can recall. But how much of it is, I mean, it's hard to put, what would you put your finger on? Like, is there a reason why you think he's like. You'd never get inside the head of a guy who signs a contract for $300 million, okay? <laughs> That's well, just I not mean, possible. Every fan out there wants you to, though. I mean, every fan out there is, you know, their reaction, they're saying, look, we're paying this guy money. We thought we were getting a 300 hitter who could steal 20, 30 bases a year and maybe give you 70 RBI. And instead, you're getting a, a 230 hitter who can't get on base. Well, you asked me the reasons, and I said, I can't get into the head of a guy who signs 300 million. In other words, I don't know what signing a contract for 300 million does to somebody in terms of pressure. Mm-hmm. How much pressure does a guy feel because he signed for that much money? playing in a city that demands and anticipates that if you're playing for that paycheck that you are going to be as advertised. I mean, maybe Turner needs to have a kumbaya session with Castellanos because he was poor last year and this year he's hitting great. Well, we hear a lot about this stuff from people who say, listen, these guys are human and you don't understand the element of finding a new school, finding a place to live your drive to work, finding the the roads, travel, that kind of stupid stuff that we don't think of. Like, for instance, this is so off, uh, not even close because I don't make $300 million, but (laughs) my drive to work the last week has been altered. Oh, because of all the construction. There's construction on one of the streets on my way here, and it's a pain in my ass. It's just a pain. And it doesn't, like, ruin my day it doesn't cause me any, like, you know, changes mentally. But I'm just saying, like, it's just a different way to get here. And, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know what, how that affects different people different ways. You know what I'm saying? That's true. I mean, look, I'm, I mean, you know me. The distance I drive and I feel like every, every time it's sunny outside, they're doing road work. Well, yeah, the time of the year now where the roads took a beating in the winter time, and now they're out there fixing them because it's warmer outside. Uh, there's a road that take that I used to get here all the time. My drive to work is about three minutes. Well, now it's turned into about eight minutes. This doesn't changing the dynamic of my day, but you know these guys are trying to find their routines. It's psychological more than anything else. That's what I think with him. I don't think he. I mean, that swing he put on the other night when he hit two home runs in the game. You're like, man, look how pretty this guy's swing is, right? I mean, yeah. it just looks like a guy who you can't figure out why he is struggling so much with the swing that he has. The dude is an elite talent. His entire career shows that. But we don't have a reason why, to use the term, why the back of the bubblegum card is not matching the play on the field. Uh, let me um, read off some text. Uh, Are there still bubblegum cards, by the way? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Did you like the bubblegum and the bubblegum cards? You just throw it out. 
everybody tried the bubble gum on the bubble gum card. It wasn't good. It was just like, you know, you had um, probably two to three chomps before it, it lost ran, out, ran out of flavor. Yeah. yeah. It was like a piece of cardboard that had sugar just loaded up on it. Yeah. It would hit you about five minutes later, and you'd be like bouncing off the walls. Uh, Mike, I'm done with the Mets until we get rid of Vogelbach and find some relief pitching. They're going to be a 70-win, $380 million team. Yeah, I mean, the, the Mets are a worse situation than the Phillies are, essentially, because the – I mean, the Phillies, as, as much as they have not played – all that well. The, the the Mets are an even more expensive team than the yes. Phillies are. What, what are they and doing? they're old. I was going to say, and they put their money, invested their money into a Scherzer and a Verlander. Mm-hmm. You know, the top of your rotation is two guys who are at the end of the line. I mean, Scherzer is 38, Verlander's 40. You're asking these guys, and then you spent money in the offseason, you know, to short well, the injury to – um. The closer. Diaz. That hurts them. You bring in Robertson at 38 years old, who's just not the same guy. He's a good pitcher still, but yeah, he's, he's not, not a closer. He's, he's not, not a lockdown Diaz. guy. Right. You, you knew you were getting a win. When Diaz were, came out of that uh, door, you know they were winning that game. That's not happening for them anymore. Yeah. Their catching situation's a mess. Um, you know, I'm not a big Lindor guy. I think they spent way too much. Now, you could say the Phillies spent too much on Turner. I think they overpaid for it. But Lindor, I think is a good player, not a great player. They paid him like a great player. Mm-hmm. Um, Marte has not been <laughs> not been a, a free agent hit for them. Not good. <laughs> Just say that. Not good. No, Marte, 245. I think, uh, I think Marte's hitting 245. I mean, they, they just do not have – give me a guy on that team other than Alonzo that you're like, this team, they're, they're real – I mean, they just don't have – and Alonzo's 230. I mean, he's essentially the best hitter on the team at 230. Not good. They just don't have a good makeup. It's not a good team. I know they swept the Phillies, but I think I feel better about – it's an interesting question. If you're a Mets fan, do you feel better about the Mets or the Phillies right now? And if you're a Phillies fan, do you feel better about the Phillies or the Mets? <laughs> you might get some different answers going on there. 609-403. <laughs> 0973. Uh, what else we got? Joe and EHT. It's not Live Golf. Everyone's saying Live Golf. The new entity is PGA DP Tour and PIF Investment Group. Not Live Golf, even though PIF is the money behind Live. Well, Live was the name of the old organization, and that's how people identify it. We're not talking about what the new name is. We're talking they don't about- have a new name. They just basically, yeah. I don't know what, what that, I don't know what that text was in reference to, but. It's not called anything now. I mean, right now, live is live, and PGA is going to remain PGA, until and they're going to merge year. until next year without – nobody knows really what the name is going to be or what the configuration is going to look like. Um, what we do know is this. I listened to Samson last night. His podcast from yesterday talked a lot about this. It's a kind of an interesting conversation. And essentially, Monahan. His boss is the the sheik. The, the Saudi sheik, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically answers to him. And they essentially said, in lieu of selling our souls here and possibly losing advertisers, we'll make up the money in lost advertising dollars 
from the Saudi money and essentially came up with this pool of money now to be able to ensure the players that they'll be better taken care of. Which, in theory, sounds great until, you know, if you're... At some point, the money's got to even out, and you got to make money. Well, the next thing, and I saw this, this kind of goes right into something I was reading this morning from Albert Breer. And Albert Breer writes that the Saudi money could potentially start infiltrating into the NFL... And some other people are starting to indicate that it could start coming into other sports as well. What's to stop them? They've essentially bought golf. Well, but remember, they're also they're also major investors in F1. They're major investors in the English Premier League. Correct. So they're not. They're, the money is now infiltrated into other sports. What's to say now that they don't say, "Hey, we want to buy every franchise. Here's fifty million for every team in the NFL," or? Just start our own NFL, XFL. We'll buy the entire thing. And Caleb Williams, don't go to the NFL draft. We'll pay you $50 million to come to our new league. Is that what we're about to see in sports? Albert Breer speculates something that I want to con- continue the conversation. I tried to get Samson on today. He was not available for tonight. We're going to try to maybe connect with him tomorrow. But his podcast about this was really eye-opening. As many of our conversations with Samson have been. More Sports Bash coming up on 97.3 ESPN. Black Kia. Now, back to Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. Oh, you gonna take me home tonight. Tendle the top. Oh, 350. Hey, uh, Rezzy is where you can get your reservations. For Trio North Wildwood, the new June schedule, they are open Thursday through Sunday. That means you can have dinner tonight. Call 609-796-2446 to make reservations. Trio North Wildwood, 700 New Jersey Avenue. Make your reservations on Resi. Back by popular demand is the meatloaf. I also, I tell you, the monkfish, I've had the pork chop. Also, that pizza on the appetizer menu. If you're going with a small little crew, get a couple of them. It's good for four. We got one for four people. Fantastic. Also, I think you will really, really, really enjoy the brownie dessert that they have there if you have room for it. Do yourself a favor. It's Thursday night, Trio North Wildwood. And starting June 21st, they'll be open starting on Wednesdays. Tell Mike Gill from the Sports Bash you heard it there, 609 Seven nine six twenty four forty six. So Albert Breer, I was listening to David Sampson's uh, podcast. It's uh, nothing personal is the name of the podcast, and we know Live Golf, PGA, and all the other entities. They all kind of combine to form one golf federation or league or whatever the heck you want to call it, and that will be starting in the twenty twenty four season. They'll finish out the year as Live as PGA as whatever this season. And then next year, they will all combine into one entity that essentially um, the Sheik will be the the final say on everything is the way I see it, right? Yeah, the working theory out there is that basically the Sheik is going to be, for lack of a better term, the Vince McMahon, if you want to use pro wrestling, of the whole thing. And that, you know, the person under him will 
basically be like the uh, the Triple H of WWE, the the, uh, the person who... Which we think will be Jay Monahan. That's the working theory right now, unless the players uh, demand that he be out, and then I don't think the I don't think the shake is really that loyal to Jay Monahan. Well, he'll, he'll over, in there. over at NBC Sports, uh, Albert Breer, in his latest column, kind of hints that if there's enough money that Saudi Arabia could buy an NFL team and that this could be the first infiltration of seeing that country basically kind of wedging itself in to try to get themselves a team which could then even become a bigger situation. I've heard, you know, Samson, one of the things he talked about on the podcast is that if, What's to stop them from saying, hey, we want to get a team? In other words, the PGA essentially succumbed to the money. The commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, his job is to make as much money for the teams as possible. If the Saudis came in and said, hey, we want to buy a team, would the league say that is not even on the table? Or would they finally say, you know what, you have enough money, you too can buy a football team? I think the, the easiest way to answer that question is, do we think that an NFL owner or owners would be willing to sell their team for anything less than top market price? Because to me, I think it comes down to how much they're willing to spend. All right, well, what is top market price? Because it seems that there is no top market number that will push the Saudis away. I mean, they continue just to throw money on top of money on top of money on top. Why do you think that WWE does whatever possible that they ask for? You know, they're doing uh, pay-per-views or whatever the heck they're called now. Down there, it's, you know, Thursday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you've got a guy, you know, Shawn Michaels, who hasn't wrestled in like 15 years. Right. Somehow they got enough money on the table to get him to do, you know, you see guys who have not even performed in years just because the Sheik says, I want to see that guy. I want to see him. And, you know, the money's there to get him out. So we'll see. Um, if they keep putting more and more and more and more money on the table, at, at what point does the NFL say, all right, we've been telling you no, we're going to say yes. And one thing that Samson kind of hinted at is could there be a situation where they just come in and basically buy a team and or start their own league and go after the – much like the USFL did years ago? I would – my responding question would be does – the Saudis, do they have more interest in NFL money than other money? Because, for example, they're already trying to get their hands in the Premier League. Do they think the NFL is a more profitable venture? The weird part about it is it doesn't seem that profitability seems to matter all that much. Live Golf made no money. I mean, they had nothing. The first year, they had no TV deal, nothing. No advertisers, zero. It almost seems like this is just like a toy. Just want to have some fun, man. We come back. Is Dalvin Cook a fit for the Eagles? Plus more from OTAs. Landry Checo inside the birds. Football at four is next. 
97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with 97.3 ESPN.com's Andrew DeCecco. My first allegiance is what will be best for the Philadelphia Eagles and our fans for the next three, four, five years. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. It's football at four. Football at four powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Andrew DeCecco from InsideTheBirds.com is here. New faces, same story, he writes. We'll talk about that story over at InsideTheBirds.com along with Eagles OTA say Nick Sirianni did speak uh, earlier this afternoon. Some interesting things there regarding wide receiver Quez Watkins. I know Andrew probably wants to discuss that and more right now on the Sports Bash. Sirianni also asked about DeAndre Hopkins. He said, you never know. You never know. He kind of hinted at. Plus, uh, Dalvin Cook apparently uh, will become available. The Eagles did add running backs in the offseason, but Dalvin Cook, Andrew DeCecco, would he look good at Eagle Green, or is that uh, probably not something that would fit at this stage of where they are? <laughs> well, Dalvin Cook would look good in any uniform. He's that type of player that can transform your offense. But as far as being in midnight green, I just don't see it, given the resources that they've already allocated to the position. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, he's been a guy who's been hurt a lot. He's probably not the same player that he was. Uh, but, you know, you got Penny here. You got Swift here. I guess adding a player like Cook would just probably be too many mouths to feed, similar uh, to if they decided to bring a guy like DeAndre Hopkins here. I mean, you just figure there's not enough footballs to throw around for uh, A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, Dallas Goddard, and if you thought about bringing Hopkins in, right? Yeah, exactly. And I have to believe that DeAndre Hopkins and Dalvin Cook would both both view themselves as being starters and they want the lion's share of the touches and that just wouldn't happen here in Philadelphia. But they're going to be a great addition for, for some team out there. I mean, obviously today, and we'll get into it, Nick Sirianni didn't rule out DeAndre Hopkins as you already alluded to, but as we sort of outlined last week, I just I find that to be a little bit difficult to, uh, to fathom. Yeah, I don't know where all these guys would fit, you know, especially the wide receivers. You know, you got those three guys. Uh, but he did talk a little bit today, Nick Sirianni did, uh, about Quez Watkins. And I know he's a guy over the years um, that you've really liked here. And he was asked, are there any individual players in the roles right now that have stood out? And he seemed to go out of his way to talk about Quez Watkins. Well, it's not really surprising because over those two years, Nick Sirianni has singled out Quez Watkins a number of different times and just been very effusive in his praise for Quez. Obviously he does a lot of things that he really, that, that a lot of Quez does a lot of things that Nick likes. He does have that speed. I think he's a coachable player and Nick's a very hands-on type of coach. And I think that Quez probably takes to his, you know, detailed approach, you know, and I think that's something that really resonates with him. And I think that that sort of translates to Nick Sirianni, but, and he even called Quez the best number two receiver that he's coached or has the potential to be at least, which I think was probably a little bit overindulgence. But, you know, nevertheless, he's sort of giving him a, a lot of uh, confidence going into a very crucial summer for Quez. Obviously, he had a hand in as many as three losses last year, which we talked about last week. And you wonder where his confidence is moving forward. Um, is he going to take some of those shortcomings and use it as motivational fuel? to move forward and be the player that he was two seasons ago. 
and really be and announce his presence as a bona fide number three on this football team, or is he going to regress, and is that going to turn into a down, downward spiral? I guess we're going to have to see, but I like the words of encouragement from Sirianni, and I'm not really surprised by that vote of confidence. Yeah, he definitely uh, singled out Quez Watkins. and said, I love his attitude, and I've said this to him. I have no problem saying it here. Some people around here, and it's not in this building, we have a ton of confidence in Quez, and I guess the question is, you had a lot of confidence in Quez, why would you go out and get you know a player to play that spot? Competition's a good thing, right? Yeah, competition's a good thing, and you have, and they really did need to fill out the depth chart. So I don't, I wouldn't necessarily read too much into it. Do I view Zacchaeus as a better slot receiver? Sure. Do I think he's a better overall receiver? Well, there are two different types of players. Zacchaeus is better in short areas. I think he's more sure-handed, but Quez also gives you that downfield dimension, that explosiveness down the field that teams have to account for. So it all depends on on who really steps up and 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 seizes the opportunity because they both have different skill sets that I think translates well to the offense. I mean, I think Zacchaeus is a quarterback-friendly type of player that can really live over the middle of the field and thrive and be that safety valve for Jalen Hurts. But then again, the Eagles don't have anybody with the speed of a Quez Watkins on offense, and he can completely flip the game with one play. Now, obviously, he hurt them. (laughs) That that, that worked against him last year when he did have his opportunities. He hurt the team. But I, I think that both players offer something different, and competition, like you said, uh, is, is the best formula for, for getting the most out of each player. We're talking with, uh, Andrew Checo Football 4 here on the Sports Pass Live 97.3 ESPN. Uh, we talked about running back Dalvin Cook, uh, looks like he's going to be available, but, uh, he was asked today about Swift, Penny, Gainwell, Scott, and he went out of his way too to bring up Trey Sermon, Kennedy Brooks, but I know Sermon's a guy you have some interest in, uh, but Swift and Penny, and Gainwell and Scott, where does Sermon fit into that group? Do they only keep four? How do you kind of read that running back room? Because both of us, I think, agree that while Cook is an awesome player, probably just not enough space in here. So how do you read the running back room? It's going to be really interesting because right now when you look at, I think, the, the X factor, so to speak, at the, in this position is Rashad Penny. And we've already outlined the injury history and things like that. And obviously there's a, there's a little bit of a risk there, but he provides a dimension that you're not going to find elsewhere on the depth chart. And he can be a, the power runner. So you're not having to rely on your quarterback to get those tough yards in critical moments, which I thought the Eagles had to lean on hurts too much. And that exposes your quarterback, but they just heavily invested into potential injury. So Rashad Penny, and he also is not just limited to the short yards potential. I think he does have some burst and acceleration but also gives you a bigger body that can do some different things. So to me, he's the X factor. But I think DeAndre Swift's going to be the focal point, particularly in the passing game. And, I mean, you also want to be – you have two running backs atop the depth chart, right, that have an extensive injury history. So you don't want to overuse them. So I think you can spread out the touches, maybe 10 to 12 for each player, and sprinkle in a little Kenny Gainwell, and you have Boston Scott on reserve primarily as your kick returner. But – uh, I don't know that there's going to be a bell cow running back. I think you're going to see uh, differing. You're going to see them implemented differently, depending on the on the opposition and, and the game plan. And you could see a guy like Rashad Penny take a series. You could see DeAndre Swift play most of a half. Like I don't know that there's going to be a rhyme or reason to it, but I think they're going to spread out their touches to maximize their health. Uh, and the offense's potency. Yeah, we got uh, a lot going on right now because of uh, OTAs and uh, the linebacking crew. Um, I was talking with Jeff yesterday about this. I want to get your thoughts on it. You got two new tackles or two new D linemen, Carter 
And Jordan Davis, to some extent, is going to get more snaps, we think, than he did last year. You have two new linebackers, brand new. N'Kobe Dean played about 30 snaps last year, and, and obviously Mora was not here. And then you have two new safeties. Don't know who they're going to be, but you're going to have two new starters. Of the groups of two, which one do you have the most concern about? Well, the most concern, I, I mean, the numbers and, and, the, and the, it would seem to indicate that it would be safety, but I, I say linebacker, right? I, I mean, and, and I've, I've written about this. Uh, it came out yesterday. They're putting a lot on the Kobe Dean's plate, and obviously this is a player who is immensely talented, was a focal point on a historic Georgia defense, but he always, he's only played 34 snaps last season. Uh, he was a special team, special teamer primarily, but, and you're, and you're giving him the green dot, which is a responsibility exclusively reserved for one player on defense to be in constant contact with the coaching staff on the field. So uh, he's inheriting that, which was, you know, TJ Edwards, that was his role last year. So they're placing a lot on the Kobe Dean's shoulders. And then opposite him, Nicholas Morrow is a, you know, he's a solid, if unspectacular player. They're both really small. They're like about 225, so you wonder how they're going to hold up in the run game. I think they offer a lot of fluidity and athleticism at the second level in terms of pass coverage and sideline-to-sideline range. But you wonder if they're not able to be kept clean, how are they going to be able to consistently disengage from blocks? I mean, that's 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 a legitimate concern right up the middle of your defense. Yeah, you wrote about uh, the linebacking crew, and you said it remains the biggest question mark. Uh, I know we're not learning a lot about this crew, but we know N'Kobe Dean is kind of uh, wearing the green dot. and uh, It kind of says in these OTAs that the one thing we've learned is that's one guy they seem to trust. Absolutely, and, and one of the things that really jumped out when I was scouting the Kobe Dean during the pre-draft process a couple of seasons ago is just how how smart, how fundamentally sound he is. He's always at the right place at the right time. He always finds a way to make a play. You can't watch it. You couldn't watch a Georgia game without seeing the Kobe Dean flash. And I just think that he is such an instinctive player and incredibly uh, has such a high football intellect that. Right away, it was so apparent to, you know, obviously to Sean decide to be like, this is the guy that I want to be in communication with because I think that he can be the quarterback of your defense. Now, there are some, you know, with that, there are, you know, some concerns. You look at his size and, and you look at his lack of experience and, and also the depth and talent around him at the position. You wonder um, what he, how he's going to be able to hold up for a full 17-game slate. And also, should he need a blow or something to that effect, who's going to be able to come in and provide competent snaps? It's kind of tough to place all your eggs in one basket for a player who's a second year, he's 22 years old, you give him the green dot, and he hasn't done it yet at the professional level. Yeah, we got uh, that and Morrow, and Morrow was saying earlier this week, too, about how uh, I'm, I'm like, uh, he said situational. Uh, being around Sean Desai, he has learned more about situational football, more in these OTAs. I thought that, like, this is something we don't hear all that much, right? You know, it's situational football, but he said he's learned more about that in the last OTAs than he did in six years in the league. I thought that was a very eye-opening comment about how Sean Desai may be a little bit more detail-oriented. That was one of the things that really jumped out when I heard uh, Nicholas Morrow talk, and that's just one of those things that, yes, detail-oriented, uh, you know, that, that really jumped out as far as Sean Desai being very meticulous and making sure that all the details, you understand the why, right? I mean, I mentioned that when they hired him, that 
uh, in Chicago, he, a lot of players really liked him because he would always explain the why. He was very focused on the details and situational football and things like that. So you're going to see a, I think you're going to see a much more structured and uh, a defense that's equipped to handle certain situations. Whereas last year, it seemed like they were on their heels. And when they were reeling, it seemed like you didn't know where they were going to be able to uh, where they're going to be able to make up their ground, but right now I think that Sean Desai, or everything we've heard in the early going, he, he's just a he's just a really good teacher, and I think that that his his mindset and what he looks for in players really translates to what Nicobe Dean does well. So I'm not surprised that there's already a, an affinity there and, and a cohesiveness. Uh, we're talking about linebackers. Tell us a little bit about Christian Ellis, who was kind of uh, the star of the linebacking group today because he picked off Jalen Hurts, uh, cut under Jack Stahl, picked off a pass. Uh, Hurts, by the way, threw two picks in a three-play span, one of them from Christian Ellis. The other one uh, was basically, it looked like uh, an undrafted, rookie Makai Gardner blanketed Zacchaeus and got a pick yeah Garner was a player that you know while everybody was talking about Eli Ricks Garner was a player that that I had uh penciled in as somebody to keep an eye on this summer but uh yeah Christian Ellis he's a player that I that I really like and you know he's entering his third season the undrafted free agent out of Idaho he was with the Minnesota Vikings and the Eagles have been sort of developing him over the past couple of seasons and uh, he's just a really tough, tenacious player. You saw him invigorate a stagnant special teams when he was promoted from the practice squad in Week 13 against the Titans. And he's an athletic player. And while he only played 22 snaps last season on defense, I think he exhibited translatable traits enough so where you think you may have something there. Now, right now, as it stands, he's the number three linebacker, the third guy. So I think that's awfully ambitious to know to, to you know sort of think that he can do that without having such a uh, larger, more substantial body of work. But I think that he's a player that the Eagles really like and they feel confident in. And I think that uh, you would like to see the Eagles add another player to the position there to, to you know, you know, incite some, some competition, don't just want to hand it to him. But I think Christian Ellis is going to have a, uh, have a spot and a role on this team. And everything that you've seen seems to point that way. Uh, they, uh, Sirianni was asked today about what stood out so far about Carter and, and Jalen Carter and Nolan Smith, you know, the two rookies. Everybody always likes to hear about the, the young guys. Hard to see uh, w- without the pads, but I think what he kind of exemplified is their athletic ability and just how much these guys jump off the field, even without their pads on, which obviously gets you excited to see them. But, you know, Jalen Carter, Nolan Smith – I know this is OTAs and you're just in this, uh, no pads out here, but Nolan Smith, we're hearing a lot about Carter, the, the strength that he has. Just what those two players could add to this defense is really interesting to kind of think about at this stage, just to, just seeing their athletic ability and drill work here. Yeah, absolutely. I think both players are going to have an early impact this season. And I think Nolan Smith might be the best value pick in the, in the entire draft. And, he looks a little bit bigger than what he looked like at the NFL yes. Combine. And so I, I think that there was, you know, all, all that deliberation about his size, is it going to translate? I think that was much ado about nothing. I, I think that he's going to be just fine as, as a situational pass rusher early. But and looking at Jalen Carter, I, I mean, I, I think that he's going to end up splitting time with Fletcher Cox early on. But he's so refined, I think, as a player that you, I wouldn't be surprised if you see him start to uh, – Supplant Fletcher Cox and really take over and take ownership of that defensive tackle. Well, let me let me let me interject. If he's 
if he's rotating or splitting time with Fletcher Cox, who's getting? Uh, how do you see that configuration? Do you see somebody else getting? You know, who's getting the the other snaps if he's rotating with Fletcher? I would think that Jordan Davis. You know, being the former first round pick, you're going to want to try and roll him out there and get everything you can out of him. And um, right, so you're I, talking I, about more of a four man a four man front. Yes. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Just to clarify, yeah, more of a four man look. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, we motion. I were talking yesterday about the configuration. And I'll see if you agree. I don't know about the side. We don't know much. But does he want to give those five-man looks where you have Fletcher, Jordan Davis, and Carter, and Jordan Davis is on the nose? I think that you're going to see a whole uh, a whole amalgam of different looks from, from Sean Desai. They're being very secretive in, in, in what he's going to do and what he's going to run. You don't hear a lot of guys talking much about what he what they're going to be asked to do. But I think you're going to see a, a number of looks. And they're going to try and get their best pass rushers on the field. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if you see those type of looks with Jordan Davis at the nose, and uh, you could even see different guys. I mean, obviously, we haven't even talked about Josh Sweat, but you could even see a guy like Contavious Street if he makes the team. He he provides a little bit of juice there. So you, they have a, such a wealth of talent there, and a really healthy and deep bench. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he chooses to deploy them. Yeah, very much so. Uh, a lot of stuff happening. This is the last day, by the way, for Eagles OTAs. They kind of go away for a little bit, and uh, then we'll be getting to training camp. And, of course, Andrew and I will be talking football on four. We'll start to look at the divisions as these teams start to put together their runs for the 2024 season. And uh, the Eagles, of course, by many accounts, the favorite in the NFC, uh, we were talking about this yesterday with, with Mosher. I'll get your take on it. If the Eagles are the clear-cut favorite, who is number two for you? In the in the entire NFC? NFC, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the Saints might be a sneaky team this year. They're not number two, though. <sighs> I mean, it could be your number two. I could be. I don't want to put words in your mouth. The 49ers probably. Yeah. 49ers would probably be, probably be that next team. A lot of people like the Lions. I guess Dallas is still in the mix. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm not You're not that, a Lions that, guy. I know that. Nah, I think that's a trendy pick right now, but I think, I think a team that could be a sleeper this year and one to watch could be the, the New Orleans Saints. But right now I would probably say number two is the Niners. It's kind of hard not to put them there, but yeah. I mean, the, the, I'm okay I, I with, sleep on I'm okay with Saints as a sleep, like you're saying. I, I agree with you there, but as the, the number two team in the conference, I don't know if I'm ready to go to, to that, to that, uh, uh, notoriety. Well, look, I mean, they got the, the, the 49ers as good as they are. They got to be able to, Brock Purdy's got to be able to show that he can do it uh, again, right? And it wasn't just a flash in the pan. I mean, they have, they have some questions there at the quarterback position. They're going to have to get ironed out. So I don't think that's a slam dunk either. Yeah. Oh, listen. And I agree with you that the Saints, with Carr, I think in that division, you go down to that South. I mean, he might be the best quarterback in that division. I mean, that is a division that's just filled with question marks. Yeah, so I, I do think that, you know, while on the surface it would seem the Niners, I think it, it might be a little bit closer than it, than it appears. All right. At a, we, we've got uh, um, the end of OTAs, and uh, football is you know, a little bit in the uh, to the forefront here uh, as the summer gets here. But looking forward to training camp now as uh, the Eagles' OTAs come to a close. Andrew DeCecco for Football at Four. Make sure you check out InsideTheBirds.com. And the Inside the Birds podcast, those guys are still putting out a lot of great off-season content, and we'll continue to talk about it right here on Football at Four on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Andrew, have a beer on me, buddy.
<laughs> Appreciate the time, Mike. Have a good one. As always, Andrew DeCecco live. And the last time, you know, we talked to Andrew, uh, we saw Andrew anyway, saw him. Uh, we were at uh, Maynard's and Margate for our Eagles draft party. That was draft day. That was way back in April. We're here in June now. And that means we're getting closer to training camp. And we'll continue our football for football conversations throughout the summer. Talk to Adam Kaplan tomorrow. Get Adam's thoughts. Those guys did a fun little exercise on the NFC East. They did a draft in the NFC East between all the NFC East teams for offense and defense. We'll catch that uh, tomorrow with Adam Kaplan here on the Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. we got sound of the day on the other side. Uh, Chris Paul looks like he's going to be released. Uh, Vegas odds are out for his next team. Lakers three to one, Mavericks four to one, Boston five to one, Clippers six to one. Going back to the Clippers, eh? Uh, Miami six to one, Pelicans. Remember, Chris Paul played for the Pelicans at one point. Seven to one, Philadelphia eight to one. It doesn't look good for that. Uh, Dame Lillard. Sixers not even on the list of teams. Maybe that's a good thing. The Sixers always seem to be at the top of the list. Now they're not on the list. More Sports Bash coming up on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 428 Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. Let me tell you about my friends at Ambient Comfort. You know, got some weird weather right now with uh, the haze in the sky, but get ready for months of hot weather. We know that's coming. My friends at Ambient Comfort Heating and Cooling Professionals and their $59 air conditioning system tune-up for new customers helps you get through these hot summer months. They'll clean and adjust your system regardless of who originally installed it. They came out to my place and took care of my air conditioning issues. You know, I have a situation in my house where we have an upstairs air conditioning unit and a downstairs. When I first moved in, the upstairs one went right away. So the other one we know is uh, probably somewhere behind it. They've come out, take a look at it, make sure it's ready for this summer. And now we're ready for a 90-degree day. When comfort matters, choose Ambient Comfort. Schedule your $59 AC tune-up now. Visit AmbientComfortNJ.com. That's AmbientComfortNJ.com. Call 609-568-0955 and tell them Mike Gill from the Sports Bass sent ya. Yeah. Imagine buying the house, right? We bought the house a couple years ago, and then like the first month we were in the house, the air conditioner upstairs goes. Had to replace the whole air conditioner. So now you know the other one's right behind it, right? You know, we've been waiting, just waiting for that one to conk out on us. But Ambient has come out there, and they just keep kind of servicing it, so we keep getting mileage on that bad boy. You're sitting there like, hey, can you guys come back out again? <laughs> right? I only need them once. They would come out. They uh, they do this quick little $59 maintenance, and so it's, it's got us through. Yeah, they come out one time. It's cool. The guy called you uh, 15 minutes out. Hey, I'm 15 minutes there. Here's a text message with uh, who's coming to your house. I like that. And when you show up, there's a guy at the door. If it doesn't match, you say, get the hell off my porch, buddy. I like it. Yeah. It's a and perfect scenario. Very good. They, they, they're they very, uh, um, what's the word, uh, very efficient is, is what I would say. Efficient and speedy? Very efficient, those ambient guys. 
So, a little news. Now it's your turn. Yes, now it's my turn. Would you stop looking at the screen over here and focus on what we got going on right here? This is the show, this part right here. Well, I had to change the tab I was on, so. You don't have to do anything but pay attention to this right here. Easy for you to say. No, it's not. I, I, I can do all this stuff at the same time. Let's go. What do you got for me? Hit me with your best shot today. Well, I'm going to start with, with, with Ramona Shelburne. So, to give a full encapsulation here, Chris Haynes reported yesterday, and Woj had a follow-up report about it, but Chris Haynes was the first to drop this, that it looks like the Suns and CP3 are going to part ways in some capacity. Uh, it's funny, because when Chris Haynes reports it, it's like nobody else wants to... Now, Chris Haynes is from Yahoo Bleacher Report, right? right? So... Everybody else won't give him credit. But right. Chris is a pretty reputable He's guy. He's one of the best. Yeah. He is one of the best. It, you know, if, if it's Woj and Shams are the, you know, the top number one, one A, one B, then Haynes is right behind him at two, basically. Yeah, he's making moves in that world, I yeah. guess we could say. So Haynes dropped the news yesterday that basically Chris Paul and the Suns are working on an exit strategy. They're, they're working on the divorce papers, right? It's just a matter of how it's being executed. And Ramona Shelburne was on ESPN LA at the moment the news happened. And they asked her a reaction, her immediate reaction in the moment to it. <laughs> and a 76er player's name came up in the conversation. Ramona Shelburne yesterday on ESPN LA radio. They don't do that unless they feel pretty good about somebody else. And I want you to keep your eye on James Harden. Okay, this um, I'm not. I don't want to report anything, but that was in the wind for the mm. past month or so. Of like, play, you know, everybody thinks it's like Philly or Houston, but I, I have, I don't know. There, Harden, there, there Harden has been and discussion uh, in the wind. Harden and Durant. Harden and Durant are okay together. Uh, totally okay. Remember, they flew to Europe and hung out in London last summer, and then then there's also the Kyrie of it all too. Okay, this is the thing about Phoenix. Everybody wants to play with Devin Booker. He is like the perfect guy to play with because he he doesn't suck up all the oxygen in the room. He's really good. He's a great shooter, and he he knows how to be a good teammate. Like he's already proven he will take Kevin Durant onto his team and Chris Paul onto his team. Well, there's a lot there. She says it in the moment, which is keep your eye on Phoenix for James Harden. Now, your guy, Brian Toporek, has been on game night. He wrote about a possible sign-and-trade between the Sixers and the Suns that would swap, essentially, Harden and and, and uh, Paul. Correct. And the idea being that first Harden has to sign a, a new deal, and that deal has to fit within the framework, kind of like what they did with Jimmy Butler when they traded Jimmy years ago for the Sixers. But the idea being that, you know, if the Suns are trying to do a literal replacement of Chris Paul, a Paul for Harden deal, according to Brian Toporek, is possible. I know that the Suns have been rumored by a lot of people to be a dark horse for James Harden because of the Durant relationship. And, Mike, I thought it was important that Ramona mentioned, hey, Harden and Durant, they're hanging out in the offseason. They're doing stuff together. So that kind of leads you to think, hmm, maybe there's a little more smoke to this fire. 
Uh, possibly. I don't see something like that happening. And as Michael Kasky Blomain, we talked about it in the three o'clock hour. I just don't think Chris Paul is at the right stage of his career for what the Sixers need. The Sixers fans, you know, it's because they're so frustrated and you hear Chris Paul and you're just thinking, I'll take anybody who is seemingly, you know, capable, better than what we have or perceived <laughs> to be better than what we have. I don't know that Chris Paul is better than what you have. I don't know that Chris Paul, look, Chris Paul has never been an elite scoring player. That's not what Chris is. He's not a, you know, knockdown shooter, right? He's not a guy that just like cranks threes, um, you know. I I don't know that he signi- changes anything significantly. You might be different, but I don't know that you're better. There's still also the possibility you could get more teams involved. Like it doesn't have to be a little hardened for Paul trade. You know, we know Maury has made some wild and crazy deals in the past, and the NBA is a strange place. You know, you remember the Andre Iguodala deal that had like four or five teams involved, and Bynum went to the Sixers, and Iggy went here, and uh, Dwight Howard went to the Lakers, right? Iguodala went to what, the Nuggets, I believe, in that deal. So, you know, I don't foresee it has to be a literal Paul for Harden deal. But No, I- but, I mean, if you are – Forget that who's included. If you're swapping Harden out to bring Paul in, no matter what the configuration is, I don't know that you're better. Put it this way. James Harden still scored 20 a night and led the league in assists. Right. Chris Paul last year scored 14 a night and didn't lead the league in assists. So you're getting a downgrade in player. Yeah, but see, you're saying you're getting a downgrade, but yet James Harden's also the guy that completely choked in game six and seven. So... What's more important? Is it leading the league in assists in the regular season, or is it getting out of the second round? Uh, fair to say, if Chris Paul had a track record of having playoff success, he well, too has not have had. It to be Chris Paul. It could be somebody else as part well, of the Well, I mean, he's the guy trade. that's available at this point right at now. At this point, yeah. but that could change a month from now. Well, I, I can't speculate on guys who aren't currently available. Yeah, if you tell me that Devin Booker's available, sure, he's an upgrade. You're not giving me a guy. I'm giving you a guy who seemingly is available in in this instance, yeah, you could have a trade with 19 different teams. I don't know who I'm getting back in return in any of those deals. But the guy who is right now obviously available is Chris Paul. And I don't think Chris Paul makes this team better. He might make them different. You're out on the Chris Paul. And I like Chris Paul. I followed him back at Wake Forest. He was uh, really, you know, um, <laughs> I feel like he is a very good player, but not a difference-making guy. He's always been the guy who's come up short. Okay. Now, man, and, listen, and I, I don't disagree with you. I just think it's an interesting – I just think it's interesting that we're hearing more of these possibilities. You know, remember Brian Windhorst, I believe it was last – got to double-check when exactly he said it. But he said, you know, don't assume anything with Harden. Don't assume it is the Sixers. Don't assume it is the Rockets because – there could be another team, and are the Suns maybe that other team? That well, one we thing that we see? do know is between now and the time that Harden has to make his decision, you're going to hear here, there, and everywhere. He's torn. He wants to go to Houston. Now he wants to come to Philly. He's open to other teams. He wants Houston. It's going to go all over the map. I mean, this side's going to leak out this. This side's going to try to get that out. At this point, you know, I'm looking at Vegas odds for players. 
LeBron James is next team, if not the Lakers. Is there a possibility LeBron James gets traded this offseason? I don't see that happening, but he's on the list. Chris Paul is on the list. Dame Lillard is on the list. Now, Dame was on a podcast the other day, and he mentioned two teams, Miami and Brooklyn, not Philadelphia. I'm looking at these Vegas odds. Guess who's not on the list? Philadelphia. Right. They don't have a trade package that would make any sense. I mean, that's essentially Vegas saying we don't see Portland taking James Harden for Dame Lillard. And that's really what the big issue is, and that is, is fill-in-the-blank team actually going to make this deal? And if fill-in-the-blank team has no interest in making a deal, then you're up creek without a paddle. It doesn't matter what you want. Pretty much, yeah. The other guy on this list, by the way, is DeAndre Ayton. The Ayton thing is weird to me because the the whole issue with Ayton was is he had supposedly had a bad relationship with Monty Williams. Well, now if you trade Ayton, you got rid of Williams and Ayton. And honestly, what is even Ayton's value at this point? Like, is he Mike? Is he even a top five big man in this league? These are the weird things that end up happening. You have a guy who was the first pick in the draft. You're excited about the player. He comes into the league. He has a good start, and then he gets kind of molded into something that you're like. This when a guy becomes something that he wasn't as advertised, that is when the player becomes a kind of a I don't want this guy because he wasn't what I thought he was going to be, which is when you're the number one overall pick in the draft, the thought is that, you know, the guy averaged 18 points and 10 rebounds last year. And you're trying to say, well, this guy's no good. I mean, it's like James Harden. He scored 20 points and led the league and assists. Eh, I don't want him. Like, if you don't want the Aitons and the Hardens of the world, are you willing to take a lesser player because they don't get paid as much or the expectation's not as high? It's such a weird dynamic with, you know what I'm saying? Like, Aiton, double-double a night he gives you. But the problem becomes you get the double-a-double double for the 82 games, you don't get it for the 16 games. And that is where, okay, I'm not getting it from the 16 games, but... How do I replace that? How do I replace this guy that gave me a double-double throughout the course of the 82 and he's not giving it to me in the course of the 16? What do I do then? It, it is a really weird dynamic with, with all these guys who are the 82-game player. I mean, and quite frankly, Harden, I mean, he scored 40-plus in two playoff games, but in game one, and we're saying, well, we don't value game one's output as much as we do game six's output. And that's fair. But he showed that he could do it in game one. So because he could do it in game one, does that mean he can't do it in game six? No, I don't think he can't literally do it in game six. But I think that he, and at least based on my eyes and what I'm interpreting from other people who cover the league, is that Harden was making a lot of bad decisions in game six and seven. And because of those bad decisions, he put his team in a situation where they were looking to him and needing him and depending on him, and he let them down. And now that's why we're in the, Like, if Harden would have gone out there in game six and seven and not played so poorly and the Sixers still lost, I don't think Sixer fans would have the same consternation about him. Um, yeah, I think Sixer fans will be complaining about anybody if they don't get out of the second round and, and whoever's at the top of the list is going to get the wrath. I mean, if you're the guy who makes the money and you are to be depended on and you don't do what you're supposed to do, you always get the wrath. True, but I just think that if, 
if Harden would have scored, I'm just throwing out a random number. Let's, let's say he had averaged 28 points and six assists in those final two games and he had three or less turnovers in every game and they lost both of those games. I don't think we look at the same way because of it's how many turnovers he had, how poorly he shot, how poorly he executed, you know, exasperated things. Yeah, he didn't go down swinging, essentially. Right. He went down whimpering and dribbling and dribble, 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 dribble. Speaking of conjecture, which is always fun, the conjecture was that Vic Fangio was going to be the next defensive coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles, but he is not. He is now the D coordinator for the Miami Dolphins, and he was asked by a member of the media about, hey, you know, if the situation would have played out differently, would you? We actually got the question asked, and Vic Fangio answered, kind of. That if not for the Jonathan Gannon tampering situation, you would have been an Eagle D coordinator. Is there any truth to that? Any comment? Uh, that's possible, but I won't neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> well, he's certainly playing the game. It's possible. The question, if you couldn't really make it out. He was asked, hey, if would you be the Eagles defensive coordinator if the whole John Gaddon thing didn't happen? And he said, it's possible. I will not um, confirm or deny it. And he kind of laughed. It sounds as if in Fangio's mind that, in fact, he might be the Eagles coordinator had the whole thing not gone down. Either that, or he's got a fun personality and he just wanted to kind of put fuel in the fire knowing Eagles fans. It's interesting, though, because of the fact that, you know, he was basically in the building for months. And he Two was months, yeah. he was hanging around. They, he was a consultant for the Super Bowl game. So he was a part of the organization and what they were doing for months. So... You know, it's not far-fetched to think he could have been the next D-coordinator. Oh, of course. He definitely was probably under consideration. Uh, but I think the consideration was that Gannon wasn't leaving. And he decided when Gannon's not leaving, I'm going to take a job that's now available. And then Gannon left. And it was a what has turned out to be an illegal... Um, tampering. Yeah, tampering from Arizona to get him to leave. But definitely fuel the fire by Vic Fangio. Either that or he knows that he could really just turn the knife to the Eagles fans a little bit, who he's probably well aware were disappointed in Gannon and were excited about the possibility of Fangio taking over. I mean, listen, if nothing else, I think most people can say, you know what? I like that Vic Fangio more than John Gannon, the way he handled the media. Uh, Fangio, it, I guess he seems like kind of a curmudgeon -y guy, just to kind of like, he doesn't, you know, come off as this great personality, but maybe he's a lot more fun than he appears to be. Maybe. Uh, Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. We've got plenty on the docket. Hardened, torn between Philly and Houston. Um, kind of a weird situation, that whole thing. Uh, Philly's back in action tonight. We think it hasn't been canceled at this point. We know that. More Sports Bash coming up on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Tendle the top. Sports Bash live, 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. So, 
I'm looking at the uh, Phillies tonight at the lineup out. The difference in the air quality in Philly as opposed to down here is pretty interesting. I mean, yesterday it seemed it was worse. So here it's dropping. It's down to 181. So that is still deemed unhealthy, right? In Philadelphia, it is currently um, 169, which is also deemed to be unhealthy. But the Phillies are still playing their game, correct? We have not seen anything about that I have that no changing. updates on Twitter or any emails or any text saying otherwise. Right. Now, Washington is 183, and they did cancel their game, but they canceled their game way early this morning. Yeah, so if I'm basing the information on people who are supposed to know more than I do, the theory out there, according to the weather people, is that the way the wind and the fronts are moving the smoke, it's slowly moving south and east. So it's like that's why the smoke now it's thicker in Washington, D.C. area than it is, like let's say, New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, New York City right now is 162. Yeah, I think they were like, what, 202 yesterday or something like that? Uh, at one point, Philadelphia was the worst in the entire country. Yeah. And now that has subsided. Ventnor, for instance, just picking a random town, 181 is where your AQI currently is. So I don't know what that means. It says unhealthy. Avoid strenuous act- outdoor activity. Keep outdoor activity short. Consider moving physical activities indoor or rescheduling them. So, uh, I don't know. They, they said, um, I know Dan on the weather, the last we heard it about 20 minutes ago, said it should be progressively getting better right. as the night goes on. Tomorrow, it looks as if we're going to drop back into the orange. Correct. Which, for people out there, uh, that could be either a good or a bad thing to bet on who you ask. Well, the orange <laughs> would be good. Better than red, not right. A it's thing. better than red, right? But I mean, like you know, but people think of orange. They don't always think of good or bad. They just they're kind of like, well, what does that even mean? Um, well, we know orange is better than red. Red generally is like horrible. Do not do. Do not go. Now there is a worse than orange. What is the worse than red? Uh, is that black? Uh, let me see. Black hole sun. Won't you come? No, it is red, then purple, then like a maroon is the worst. A maroon is the worst. Yeah. Maroon is the worst. Not maroon five. And orange, yellow, green is pleasant. So there you go. Uh, Mike, I am more definitely confident in the Phillies. If Turner and Harper and Schwimmer all hit with Hall coming back, you know the lineup will score, and I'm not worried about the pitching as much as I am with the Mets. So that's a Mets fan who says he's more concerned with the Mets and he is the Phillies. And I can imagine the Phillies fans on the other side saying, I'm right. more concerned about the Phillies than I am the Mets. No, I agree with the Mets fan guy. I think the Mets are definitely more concerned. You should be more concerned about the Mets than the Phillies. Now, um, one of the things that I was listening to Jimmy Traina's podcast today. He had Mad Dog on. Okay. And one of the things that Mad Dog was talking about, about how doing a radio show has gotten so much harder, these regular seasons don't matter, you know. And he was talking about how last year the Mets and the Braves won all these games and what did it get them? And then here's the Phillies winning 87 games and they go to the World Series. 
And it appears that we're going down a path of that again this year. When you look at the standings, we talked about this with the power ranking. Tampa Bay is 46 and 19. But if Tampa Bay makes the playoffs and, you know, they get matched up against Baltimore, who's seven games behind them right now, it would be similar to what happened last year when the Phillies played the Braves. The Braves were seven games better than the Phillies in the regular season, but that didn't matter. It goes back to what Keith Jones said in that interview a couple days ago about the Flyers. He says it doesn't matter if you have the most wins in the regular season. It matters if you have the best built team for postseason success. And Bob Wankel, do the Phillies have a postseason roster are they turning the corner? What the lineup could look like? What to do with Turner? Will Schwarber stay at the top? Bob Wankel's back to talk some Phillies next. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Just uh, after 5 on the Thursday, Phil's in action tonight. They're going to finish that series with the Tigers. And try to uh, finish off a sweep. If they win the game tonight with the five straight, five out of six in the six-game stretch that we talked about. Back on Friday, Bob Wankel was here. The Phillies made a change to their lineup that day. And things have started to move in the right direction offensively for at least one guy. It looked like the other guy. But I want to get into him, too. Bob Wankel crossing broad. Phil's tonight. He joins me right now. As we uh, have our conversation on the fills that people seem to enjoy, so we bring him back to do it again. What's up, Bob? Mike, what's happening, man? How are you? I'm good, buddy. Uh, people, uh, you know, this Phil's team is maddening at times, but here they are four straight. Last year at this time, they won nine straight. If they win today, it would be five straight wins for the Phil's. We talked on Friday. That day, they made a lineup change. Uh, Schwarber back to the top. But I want to talk about Turner and get your take on Turner. He's in the four spot. If he gets going here, do the Phillies just say, let's keep him here? Or do they eventually want him to work his way back to the top of the lineup? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. It, it's been so hard to get him going that you would almost think if they do get him going for good, maybe they would leave him where he's at. But uh, I do think that when you look at this lineup, it, it's now more likely than not that Kyle Schwarber will continue to hit leadoff. Uh, I know that he is not the prototypical leadoff man. Um, you can make an argument that you're wasting his power and the run production opportunity by hitting him leadoff, but the Phillies did it with him last year. He's been better here in June. They're winning right now. So I think you're going to see a, a run here, at least for the immediate future of Schwarber in the leadoff. All of that, though, is to say that I still think that they view Trey Turner as that two-hole hitter uh, in an ideal world. So if they can get him going, I still think ultimately you would see him go to the top of the order. But Nick Castellanos has hit a little bit in that two-hole. Uh, they are happy to have him get more bats at the top of the order. And so maybe they'll slow play it, even if Turner gets unlocked here, uh, you know, in the next – I know he had his night on Monday, but he's got to do it consistently now, and we'll, we'll see if he can do it. Yeah, he's hitting four again tonight. He had four for five, two home runs. And in that four for five, two home run game, I mean, he, the swing, you look at Bob, and you're like, that's the swing. That's the guy that got 300 million bucks. And then, of course, he's 0 for 6, I think, since that time. The strikeouts are alarming. I mean, he's on pace to strike out like 150 times, if not more. Uh, it just seems that, like, 
hey, they didn't sign this guy to hit number four in the middle of this lineup. It's just a touchy situation now what they want to end up doing with him. And I guess ultimately, yes, you're saying they want him to maybe matriculate his way back to number two. Hit well enough that he can get back to where they paid him to hit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, he is on pace for about 190 strikeouts right now this season. So 190. You know, wow. More than I. Yeah. yeah, he's never he's He's actually kind of jockeyed back and forth with Kyle Schwarber in terms of who may lead this team in strikeouts when it's all said and done. And he's never been a contact heavy guy. He's always struck out a little bit, but those rates have skyrocketed this season. Um, and, you know, in fairness to him. It was almost a five for five game the other night. He had scalded a baseball that, that he was robbed of a hit late. And we saw on Tuesday night, uh, a number of balls go to the warning track and hang up. Uh, it was windy there. It was kind of blowing in and the swing has looked better. But what you really need to see from him now is not one swing or one moment or one game. You need to see him put together five, six consecutive games where the swing, even if the results aren't there, the swing looks good. Um, I think he's taken a step forward this week, but it's still, you have to say, I mean, we're talking about a latching on to one game, one swing, one moment, and hoping it gets him going. And that's not where we thought we were going to be with this player at this point. Yeah, obviously uh, the, the player looked like he had a night. It has not translated into multiple nights, but we'll see. As for Schwarber, are we seeing something different just by the move? Is it just the calendar turn because he's a June guy? Why is all of a sudden Schwarber seemingly two home runs, walk three times? That gets discounted sometimes. He had an O for that night, but he did walk three times, and then he hits the, the leadoff homer the other night. Yeah, you know, listen, I don't want to sit here and go small sample size alert. It's, it's only been a handful of games since he's really been back in that leadoff spot, but he is a hitter. I mean, we saw it last season, and we talk about the whole June Schwarber thing, and it's kind of easy to roll your eyes, but it really does extend beyond just last year. And you look at his numbers throughout his career. He has been dismal in April and May, and he does start to pick it up about two-plus months in. And so I think this is just the latest example of that. And we'll see if he can sustain it. We'll see if he can keep it going. But he's clearly a player that – needs time to get going and then you talk to rob thompson about it and you, you listen to the answer he says listen if we really knew what was going on here we would tap into it a lot sooner so it really is hard to explain it seems to just be one of those things that maybe he knows how he's been as a player and he starts to relax when he gets to june because he knows the production's been there and maybe he just sort of believes it i mean it seems so ridiculous it really does but there might just be something about the comfort of of having 60 games under your belt before it really you get going yeah and i don't discount you know the look these are guys who had at bats in high pressure situations in october and then your next at bats are in the lowest of low pressure situations i get that you know you talk about a hangover i don't know if it's so much of a hangover as much as it is it's hard to ramp the you know, the, the competitive juices back up to a level that just aren't there at that time of the year. And you're kind of in this malaise until you almost say, all right, I, I have to kick it into another gear. I know it's kind of hard for us to assume that professional athletes may take it like that, but think about anybody who you're playing at the highest level. And then your next game is like the first game of a regular season. And you're like, eh, this isn't the game I just played. I was in the world series. And that's why it's so hard. I think for these guys to get back there. 
I agree with that. I, I think that there's definitely psychological issues that, that you have to look at. I think that there's a human element to this where you are playing on the biggest stage, big time pressure, the, the stadium just being out of its mind in the month of October. And then you come back a few months later, you got so close, you didn't climb the mountain. Now you're playing games in front of a great crowd. I mean, their attendance numbers have been outstanding this season, but I still think it's hard to get yourself up for that. And you would think that they would want to do everything possible to put themselves in the best position possible to make that postseason run again. But I, I do think there's something when you have a veteran team like this, they they know they haven't played well, but they're also looking at the National League and they're looking at the NL landscape and that third wild card spot and saying we're three games out. You know, we don't we don't truly have to do this until July, as long as we don't sink ourselves. And and you know, that's a thing I've I've kind of given some consideration to lately. They have some difficult series ahead, Los Angeles this weekend being one of them. Arizona out west for four is tough, but there's the A's of the world. They have the Cubs here later. You know, I just think I think that they feel like if we can get to July one around five hundred, we're we're very much in this thing, and we'll have ninety games to kind of step on the gas and go. Well, and Bob, it, it, you know, you look at where this team has been in the in the Kapler years. For say, they were in the race up to September, a game out, and couldn't hold on. You know, so if you're just hanging around three to five games by that point teams seemingly and it seems like there's a lot of teams that have the profile that they could run out of gas you know like if Pittsburgh is still hanging around can they get through the dog days of summer with this team that nobody thought anything of hanging in there the Giants are another team are they going to hang around I mean this is a team that last year just fell out of it but they might be a team that is in the third wild card spot come September, but do they have the legs? And that might be where the Phillies can not, and I said at the beginning of this year, this is not going to be a fun regular season, but they might have the staying power that some of these other, this National League is just filled with a lot of also rands. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of mediocrity, especially when you get past the Atlantas and the Los Angeles of the world. And so you're talking about the Pirates. Uh, you're, you're talking about teams like the Marlins who have played very well here in the early going. But, you know, you mentioned the idea of longevity and not having the legs to kind of finish. I think the Marlins are probably going to fit that profile. The Phillies have legitimate competition here. They're not going to be able to win 82 games and get into the postseason. They're probably going to have to win 86, 87 in order to do it. But I think that this team remains capable of it. And I know that you can look at last year after the, the Girardi firing and say this has been a mediocre team dating back to Gabe Kapler maybe that's just truly what they are and I think that this is a very flawed team but at the same time there are a lot of winning parts here and there's some really good talent on this team and I would tell you that there's two variables I think that people really have to lock into number one this bullpen is built to win. This is a very deep and talented bullpen that can attack you both from the left and right side. They have numerous guys that have high leverage situation experience, that strikeout capability. It is one of, in my opinion, one of the best five bullpens in baseball. I know that they got off to a rocky start for a while. I think a lot of that was because the starting pitching left them expo uh, exposed. But if they can get into a situation where the offense is just 
league average, which I don't think is an unreasonable ask, and they get a little bit more out of the starting rotation, which they have here lately, I think that really allows this bullpen to settle in and show you what they can be. They haven't had to protect that many leads late, small leads late, because the Phillies haven't really played that kind of game this season. They either blow teams out or they're playing from behind. But if they can consistently get the opportunity to lock down games late, I think that they're very capable of doing it. And I think they're going to add at the deadline. If they're hovering around 500 and they're in an ad situation, they're going to add. This team's trying to win a championship. I don't know if they're going to, but I think that from an ownership standpoint, it's an all-in type of approach. Yeah, uh, and let's talk a little bit about that bullpen because it looks like Alvarado's going to be back this weekend. But what are you feeling, man? I saw you tweeting away about Kimbrell the other night. Man, Bun himself, Kimbrell looks like he's dialed it back a little bit, dialing it up to 97 on the gun. He had his early season struggles, and I'd be lying if I told you I totally trust that he will maintain what he's done here recently. But if you're just scouting it and you're sitting down right now and you're saying, well, where's Craig Kimbrell at on June 8th? You'd say he looks pretty darn good right now. I mean, he was 97-plus with the fastball in the ninth inning against the Tigers the other night. Um He's he's been susceptible to the home run ball, and that will probably bite him again at some point. But by and large, the velocity looks up. The swing and miss stuff has been there. And the Phillies, I, I think, have a nice little option back there that has quite a bit of experience. So I don't know that he finishes the season as the closer or that he's going to rack up another 25 saves this season or anything like that. But it, whereas it looked like he was a total bust about four or five weeks ago, Right now, you think, all right, I, I feel reasonably confident that he can hold a lead for us. Yeah, well, and, and as you mentioned, um, he – it'll be interesting to see, I guess, is how – is Kimbrell the closer? Because it seems like right now he's the guy in the ninth inning. What happens when Alvarado comes back? If you get Dominguez kind of rolling again, do they reshuffle the deck? Or is Kimbrell best suited for – no, 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 I'm the guy in the ninth inning. Yeah, I think if all things are equal, it's, it is Kimbrel right now. Uh, but you know how the Phillies do this. They look at the lineup, who's coming up in a given situation. Is there a big spot in the seventh inning where they really want to rely on Alvarado's swing and miss stuff? They're probably going to use him then. Um, if there's a wave in the ninth inning where they feel that Alvarado's stuff is going to profile better against the, the hitters that are coming up, they're going to use him then. So I think there is a mix and match component to it, but the bulk and the, the lean when it's a 50-50 type of proposition probably goes to Kimbrel right now. Yeah, that, that'll be and, – and whether or not you can trust Kimbrel, uh, you know, he pitched very well for a majority of last year. Then he was left off the Dodgers playoff roster, for God's sakes. Yeah. Uh, so he's, he has come a long way, though. I mean, he's he's not that guy. He's certainly usable late in games, and we'll see. And, yeah. you know, Alvarado coming back, it, it creates just another option for them. You mentioned, uh, obviously, the trade deadline, which is a ways away. But, obviously, you got to look at this team and start to say, all right, where do they have to think about improving? That fifth starter spot, is that the thought? Or is it to get somebody better and bump people back? I think that... You, you get to the World Series last year, and what was the biggest difference in the World Series last year? I guess there were a few, but I kind of come back to starting pitching. I, I felt that when it was all said and done and you look at the way the World Series played out, I just don't think the Phillies were able to match what the Astros had in terms of their starting pitching. And so if you go out and you add a fifth starter type, 
you're and you get to the World Series again, and you're presumably going to be playing an elite American League team. Do you trust the mix and match of Zach Wheeler, who's not having a vintage Zach Wheeler Philly season right now? Aaron Nola, who's been up and down. Taiwan Walker, who's been a coin flip. Uh, and, and then, you know, Ranger Suarez, who you might need to use in a bullpen situation, much the way you did last October. Um, is that enough? And I well, think let me, let me ask enough. you about that. I thought about this, uh, the other day. Did you get a Strom and a Soto so I don't have to use Suarez in that role? I think, I think you make that argument. Yes. Um, but again, and, and time will tell here. I mean, the Phillies have the, the benefit of another five, six weeks to really investigate where are these guys at? Is Zach Wheeler going to pitch to a four plus ERA for the remainder of the season? Is Aaron Nola going to be the guy that we saw the other night? Or is he going to be the guy that blew up against the Braves and had a mediocre start against the Mets, which has sort of been his rhythm all season? So, you got to find out what you have in those two. Ranger Suarez has thrown the ball a little bit better here the last two times out. I thought he was especially good his last time out, encouraging. But I think you need – I mean, this is a long-winded way of me saying, I think you need another guy that you can say, this is a true number two, number three type type of pitcher that you can stack up against another 9,500-win team's second or third best pitcher. So who is that? You know, we'll see how the market plays out. There's some interesting options out there, but you're going to have to pay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you just look at the White Sox. Well, you're looking at like, uh, you know. That's the guy for me. Yeah. If you want a name, it's Lucas Giolito. Well, that's what I was saying. You got that level of pitcher or you're going down the trick, the bag of like a Drew Smiley, you know, the guy uh, who's just, you know, he is what he is, a fifth guy. I think that becomes a, a big part of the evaluation of your team. Do you trust the Phillies to win the wild card, win a wild card spot? I'm not saying that they're punting on the division, but that's probably their most likely path to the postseason. Do you trust this team to win a wild card and then be able to recapture that type of magic that they did last October to make that championship push? Like, Because if you're going to go out and get a guy like Giolito, my guess is that the conversation on the other end is going to involve a guy like Griff McGarry or Mick Abel. And you've worked very hard to accumulate numerous intriguing pitching prospects, we'll say, do you want to start to dilute that talent to go in on a rental piece if you don't really believe that you have a championship team? And, I mean, that's the question that every team that has to make these decisions every July has to ask themselves. Um, There's an urgency, though, here in Philadelphia for this team to do it. I think that they would if they're given enough reason to believe they can. So I think that's where it sits right now. Uh, Bob Wankel crossing broad Phillies, of course, uh, tonight against the Tiger. We think tonight, right? They're playing? Yeah, they are going to play tonight. They are going to play tonight um, against the Tigers. So last I looked 19 minutes ago, unless anything's happened in the last 19 minutes while we've been talking. Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of came out of nowhere yesterday. I mean, I'm down the shore, so the weather's a little different, but apparently this, there's a swing that the weather, the, that the, uh, air quality down here is now worse than it is up there. Yesterday, I mean, earlier today, wasn't Philly like the worst in the country? It was horrible. I went out this morning. I live right across the uh, right across the Walt Whitman there on the foot here in the Jersey side, and it you know walked the dog, and it was horrendous. Um, so and I was out last night uh, at dinner with my wife, and it was really bad. Now, right now, you walk outside, and it's 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 fine. So they are playing. It is on as of now, and it is much better here. Gotcha. All right, uh, Bob Wankel crossing broad fills, and I guess the last thing tonight, you mentioned the pitching earlier. 
started to come around. Everybody has taken a turn. The one guy who has not pitched well is Wheeler in his last start. And that's disappointing because you're playing the damn Nationals. You know, you're the man, and that's a game he can't get through the fourth inning. He gets lit up against a, just an awful lineup. This is the night. And look, I'm not saying because you lose to the Nationals and then followed up with potentially a loss to the Tigers that you still can't pitch and win a World Series game. But it would be highly frustrating to see just because you want the guy to be the guy. That's all. Absolutely. I mean, this has been a little bit of a show me series for the Phillies. They've they've dug themselves a hole. You have a, a vulnerable team here. There has to be some urgency at some point. Sweep them. Two out of three, I don't think, is a sufficient outcome for this team. They have the pitching advantage tonight. It's basically a bullpen game for Detroit versus what the Phillies will bring in their best pitcher. Keep in mind, though, Wheeler did have probably the best pitching performance we've seen from a Philly this season. Two starts ago in Atlanta in a huge spot. He's run into some bad luck this year. I don't want to make excuses for the guy, but, you know, he's been okay. I think better than his numbers suggest. He has an opportunity to go out and sweep a series tonight, and he should do it. I like to see it. You know, and it's one of those things where I think one of the things with Nola that bothers people is like when you think of an ace or a guy is when you face the other team and that guy's on the probables list, you're like, ah, crap. You know, Jacob DeGrom, who sadly can't pitch anymore. When you see the Mets have Scherzer, you're like, you're not winning that game. The Phillies... You like when you see Wheeler to say, we're winning tonight. And it just doesn't, and same with Nola. It, it should feel that we're winning because Wheeler or Nola are pitching, and it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, it's been a combination of things. Inconsistency on the pitcher's end, and then they don't hit for, or they, they especially have not hit for Aaron Nola. And you listen to me talk about Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola, you know I think Wheeler is that guy. I'm not so sure that Nola is that guy. I'm sort of in that camp of he's a very good two. I know a- all the numbers and all the reasons to say he's a one, and I, I understand all that. It's just a kind of a personal observation of mine. But I agree. You don't always get the sense that, Hey, they're going to drop the hammer tonight. Here it comes. That contract's that, that contract's going to be interesting, man. Oh, it, it'll be one of those debates because some team will probably pay him more than than most fans will expect him to get. Even this year, you look at like the whip, for instance, it's one point oh eight. That's pretty good. You know, we see the the frustration and the blow up innings and the pitch clock talk and and all of the different reasons to not want to give him that contract. But there's some team that's looking out there at the consistency year after year after year, value certain statistics more than others. And even if he just maintains what he's done to this point, he's still going to get paid very, very handsomely. Uh, real quick, we talked, we hit on it a little bit. I want to get your thoughts. Uh, are you buying the Marlins long term? They've won six in a row, eight out of ten. Do they have legs? No, they're not a playoff team this season. I mean, they've they've beaten the Royals and the A's. They've basically been a shade under 500 most of the season. They've beat up on some really inferior competition, credit to them. But you look at the run differential, they're still well in the negative there. I just, credit to them, they'll, they'll probably hang around and they'll get to look at the playoff standings come August, but I just don't think that's a team that gets to the finish line. Okay, Pittsburgh, are they uh, a team that has the staying power? No, but to their credit, uh, after that, that crazy start, they really came back to earth and they've sort of stabilized again. So they've had a little bit more run than I would have expected. I actually figured that they would be below 500 by now. So, uh, they're kind of young. They have some energy. They've thrown the ball pretty well. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think they're a playoff team, but again, like 
can they pretend that they're in it come mid-August? Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable to say. All right, Giants. Uh, that was a team that won 107 games two years ago, didn't make the playoffs last year, and now they're a game over 500. Are they going to be in the mix? I don't, I don't see it at all. I, I don't think that there's anything outstanding about that team. I don't think that there's anything special about it. Um, they play fairly well at home historically, and, and other than that, and that division in the West, um, I just I don't think so. I mean, Arizona, Los Angeles, um, I, I think are, are clearly the two best teams, and, and San Diego is going to get it going at some point, as bad as they've been. Yeah, San Diego. All right, you got the Mets. Are you in on the Mets, or are you – Dropping them. Lost five in a row, seven out of ten. Uh, they're led by a 38 and a 40 year old top of the rotation starters. The, the bullpen stinks. Uh, they're very inconsistent offensively. And I, I just don't know at, at what point do you. I, I don't think that they have enough depth to do it. And I, we talk about Rob Thompson. You know, they, the Phillies get off to the start that they did this season, and people want to unload Rob Thompson. At what point do you start taking a look at, at Buck Showalter's job security uh, up there in New York, given the payroll and the expectations that have come with that team? But I just don't think at the end of the day they have the bullpen to do it. Uh, you know, could be wrong. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, San Diego, you mentioned. Is there anybody else that you might keep an eye on? Cincinnati, Chicago, St. Louis? Uh, everyone's within seven. So is there another team below Philly and San Diego that we should keep an eye on? St. Louis, just because of the pedigree, it just feels like the Cardinals always find a way to be relevant. It's very rare that they fall out of contention, especially early on, but they've been, they've been fairly dreadful this season. The pitching, the starting pitching in particular has been poor. Um, and I'll tell you what, uh, what one team that I think might be uh, still a year or two away, but it's really fun to watch right now. They lost to the Dodgers today, six nothing. Kershaw shut them down. Phillies catch a break, not seeing Clayton Kershaw this weekend, by the way. Uh, but the Cincinnati Reds right now have, fun team to watch playing with a lot of energy a lot of comeback wins lately they have some young talent uh they they are not a playoff team but they are a team that has generated a lot of buzz and people in cincinnati are quite excited about that team right now yeah well it's nice to have young players that can come in and help out and hit bombs and run the triples out and you know you just say hey come on up we need you phillies don't have that right now we get drew ellis that pops into the lineup for one, yeah. for one day only, it was a Drew Ellis day. Today, it's a Josh Harrison day. All right. Drew, Bob Wankel crossing broad. Phil's tonight looking to make it five in a row. Bob, thanks, bud. Talk soon, Mike. All right. Yes, we will. The Phil's continue on at Citizens Bank Park. They are playing tonight in Philly. Air quality be damned. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, I was outside today for a little bit longer than yesterday. I didn't notice any difference. Maybe I'm different than, I don't know. Uh, it's 166 in Philly right now. I haven't noticed any problems. Now, I was talking to a gentleman at the deli today, and he told me he was having real problems with this. Now, I don't know what different people's, you know, things are, but... I've noticed a definitive difference from yesterday to today. I didn't notice anything yesterday either, I so I told you on so it was Tuesday night I first noticed the smell. And then as Wednesday progressed it became more and more frustrating, I'll call it. To constantly smell it, you know, if you were outside long enough, it kind of felt like it was like teetering on your eyes a little bit. 
Um, obviously, we didn't get it as bad as some other places did, but I didn't notice it start breaking until last night. It started thinning out, being less intense, and then today is definitely, for me, less intense than yesterday. All right. Well, the intensity is uh, at 181 down the shore right now, so that's where we're at. Phil's tonight. They're going to play. That's your lineup. When we come back, Jeff Kerr was at Eagles OTAs today. What did he see? What stood out? Stick around for that. You don't want to miss it. 97.3 ESPN. Now, Spash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, 5.33. Jeff Kerr, CBS Sports, from the practice field to the Sports Bash. He was there today, Eagles OTAs. What did he observe in the final OTA of the summer, fall, I mean, spring, what is it? Summer, fall, spring, I don't know what we're in right now. Uh, I tell you this, it's, uh, it, 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 it's the end of football for at least a month as the Eagles finish up OTAs. All right, Jeff Kerr, what do you got? Well, there wasn't much going on today, but there was enough in my observations to at least tell a story. And basically, I think Christian Ellis separated himself from the pack in terms of linebackers today. Uh, picked off Jalen Hurts. Um, he, he picked off Marcus Mariota last week, too, in the other open OTA session, Mike Gill. So that's two interceptions in the two open media set, set uh, sessions available. Um, he was first team linebacker today. I don't know where Nicholas Morrow was. It's a voluntary session, but he got the opportunity to play first team and took advantage of it. He was the star of today. Uh, yeah, I did see interception. Tell us a little bit more about him because I don't know that anybody even knew this guy was on the roster. What, what kind of qualities? I mean, when you say linebacker, is he a guy who's more of a TJ Edwards, more of your classic run stuffer? Is he better in coverage? Uh, what are some of the skill sets he has that stood out? Quite honestly, uh, he's pretty good in coverage. Uh, obviously you're not going to see many things in seven on sevens, but Christian Ellis became kind of a name last year, and it was week 14 against the Titans. He had a really good game on special teams, and that was the Eagles called him up for the practice squad. They needed help on special teams. He had a really good game. He was playing in a gunner-type role, and he was kind of like the unspoken hero um, after that game. I know it was a blow, but there were a lot of things going on, A.J. Brown and all that, but I went and talked to Christian Ellis after that game, and you know, Chris Ellis said, hey, you know, whenever this team needs me, I'm going to be there. And the Eagles like him. I, I, I think that they are going to try to upgrade at linebacker at some point this summer. But I think Chris Ellis is going to help this team going forward. Jeff Kerr, CBS Sports uh, at Eagles OTAs. His observations over at CBS Sports. Dot com. Christian Ellis, first team snaps. He picked off Jalen Hurts. How about Jalen Hurts today? What do you, I know his uh, interceptions. I think he had another interception right after that. But uh, when you look at Hurts, does he look like a guy? Last year he was the guy trying to prove to people. How does he seem today? Well, today it's, I mean, look at who he was working with. Dallas Goddard wasn't there, so he had Jack Stoley and have A.J. Brown. Um, he tried to... The first interception was by Ellis. He was Jack Stoll was his intended target there. The second interception he threw, um, Makai Gardner, uh, an undrafted free agent from Michigan State, picked him off. Uh, he basically, and he was known for being physical in college. 
I, I think Makai Gardner's from Michigan State. Hold on, let me look this up. Oh no, LSU, LSU. I'm sorry about that. Getting my undrafted free agents wrong. So uh, I didn't, I didn't think that sounded right. So Kai Gardner's from LSU. He was very physical for the Tigers, and from basically what the play was, Hurts was looking for Omalade Sakias, and Gardner just out physicaled him and got the ball. So, and there's the second interception, but the very next play. Give credit to Devonta Smith on this. This is where my Michigan State thing's coming in, by the way. Eli Ricks, who that's who Devonta Smith beat on a double um on a double move, got wide open, Reed Blankenship was late, and Devonta Smith had a long touchdown on the very next play, and jail that was pretty much Jalen's day. So, you know, helter skelter type of day, but again, I don't judge too much out of the quarterbacks in minicamp. No, but you know who's a big uh Gardner fan? Your boy Andrew DeCecco. Oh, he is. Yeah, I'm surprised he had, he had texted me after that. Yeah, well, I talked to him earlier today, and he said, you know, everybody wants to talk about Eli, um, uh, Eli Ricks, but um, I'm more of a Gardner fan. So Gardner had the pick today in camp uh, OTAs there. Give us a little uh, thoughts on Sidney Brown. Uh, That safety spot, I mean, really seems to be up for grabs. Is he a guy that maybe put himself uh, in higher regards when he enters training camp? I think the Eagles want Sidney Brown to win one of those starting safety jobs. And I think it, they want Sidney Brown and Terrell Evans. I think they're the two that they want. Um, obviously, Reed Blankenship is a starter now, but I don't think they view him as a long-term starter. I think it's something that he earned until Sidney Brown gets acclimated. I think Blankenship's going to play a big part of this team, but it seems like you just don't draft a guy that early in the third round and – not play him year one. By the way, this is a guy who played five years in college in Sidney Brown. So I think they want Sidney Brown to win this job, Mike Gill. And the indication, I mean, you just got a chance to kind of see this guy, athletic, speed. Uh, what kind of safety does he bring to the table? I mean, you got last year Epps, who was kind of the steady Eddie guy. You had uh, Chauncey Garner-Johnson, who was the playmaker guy. So how does uh, Sidney Brown kind of project? I think he's a playmaker with high motor. If, if that's what I would go with. Uh, Brown, playmaker, high motor. All right. Could be that kind of, you know, safety that this team has been missing. I mean, really, Jenkins was a different type of safety. He was an all, you know, do it all type of guy, right? I mean, Malcolm yeah, Jenkins, you could- that you had, um, uh, Ronnie McLeod, who was kind of a steady Eddie type of guy, not a playmaking safety. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when they signed Rodney McLeod, I loved the signing at the time because he was becoming kind of a playmaker with the Rams. And he came here and you're right. He was steady. Any kind of like Marcus Epps and, you know, McLeod earned his money. Same, same with Marcus Epps. And, you know, they both filled the role. It's, I think they're hoping for a little bit more out Sidney Brown. I think they want the steady Eddie guy to be Terrell Edmonds. Uh, coach Sirianni today, Jeff Kerr, CBS Sports with us. Uh, you were there. Uh, kind of went out of his way to, uh, give praise to one quiz. <laughs> Watkins, who everybody seemingly thinks is out of the mix here, but Nick Sirianni says not so fast. He gave us kind of a look too, like, oh, some of you don't believe in him. He literally, the guy literally went out of his way to specifically mention Quez Watkins. And what does Quez Watkins do? He drops, well, he didn't drop a ball. He misplayed the ball, um, that Jalen Hurts threw that Quez Watkins probably should have caught, uh, during the seven on sevens by digress, but, I mean, Nick Sirianni said it, Jalen Hurts said it, Wes Watkins having a great camp, so you gotta take their word for it. Well, listen, we all hope that Quez Watkins, uh, look, if Quez Watkins wins the job, does that mean Zacchaeus was disappointed? Does that mean Watkins improved? Who knows? 
Yeah, I think it could be both. I mean, I, I think what the Eagles are trying to tell us is they are more than fine with A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, Quez Watkins, Obelade, Sakias, and Britton Covey. They, they happen to be the five. Okay, uh, let's get into a couple things here. Uh, Dalvin Cook looks like he's going to be waived by the Vikings. We know the Eagles like Cook, but they already got some running backs this offseason. So should Cook be on their radar? I would say they would have been interested if they trade for DeAndre Swift. I think they didn't want to wait that around, wait around that long, you know, have just have a shot. I'll say this, Mike. I think they like Trey Sermon a lot more than other people like Trey Sermon. I, I think Trey Sermon is going to be a part of this thing. With Rashad Penny, with DeAndre Swift, with Boston Scott, with Kenny Gainwell. I mean, it's very possible this team could have five running backs. Yeah. It is possible. Yeah. I mean, if Cook is available, it would be interesting to see if they, but you mentioned Sermon because Sirianni mentioned Sermon today. Yeah. And they do like him. I mean, he's a guy they took a flyer on last year and last year was kind of like a red shirt year. And I think Eagles feel anybody can run behind this offensive line. I mean, you know, you and I both know that they love Dalvin Cook, but. Yeah, we'll see. If they would bring in Dalvin Cook, training camp would be very, very interesting just to see where Rashad Penny and DeAndre Swift fall in. Yeah. If I was Rashad Penny, I'd be on the, I, I'd be looking over my shoulder if they would sign. Well, similar to the conversation about DeAndre Hopkins, you know, Hopkins say, "Hey, I love to play for the Eagles," and the Eagles are saying, "Yeah, we wouldn't mind having you here, but we don't have enough footballs for you." Yeah, exactly. There's one football to go around, right? And by the way, you got to keep your own guys happy. A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, Dallas Goddard. Like, last year that was – I don't want to say it was a problem, but, I mean, they had trouble doing that at times last year. Now you had Hopkins and Mix. I'm, I'm sure they don't love it, but maybe the guy you bring in is the guy that's going to have the problem. You uh, wrote over at CBS Sports about the top available free agents available at each position. Is there a guy that is available – and a need for Philly where you think there could be a marriage? Because Hopkins obviously is a big name. Cook is a big name. But is there somebody else on that list that maybe makes sense that isn't as big of a name? Well, I know one person is not a name that I put on there, and that's Carson Wentz. Uh, you're not going to see that happening. So, um, you know what, Mike? I really don't think so at this point anymore. I mean, you got enough pass rushers. Jonathan Ngakwe is not going to be a fit for you. Uh Free agent linebackers just isn't any. I, I think you're going to have to go to trade route either your linebacker or safety to find that guy. Yeah, uh, I'm looking through your list, too. I kind of agree with you. There's probably not someone uh, on this list. I mean, Marcus Peters at corner. Um, they have two outside corners. You, you Maybe if you want to get depth at the position, we'll see. All right, OTAs in the book. And then uh, no date yet for Eagles training camp. They'll be back. Jeff Kerr, I'll have plenty of coverage over at CBSSports.com. He'll be back on the Sports Bash here on 97.3 ESPN. Well, uh, you just walked in the door and ran right to the Sports Bash. So good job out of you. Hey, you know what? If I happened to check out uh, the Bird app and see the UDN slid into my DMs, I might kill <laughs> I wouldn't have been on that. All right, brother. I'll talk to you. <laughs> It sounds great, buddy. Thanks. Jeff Kerr, CBS Sports, covers the NFL. He was at Eagles OTAs today. And, yes, we slid right into Jeff Kerr's DM and said, Yo, Jeff, you're at OTAs. Give us a little eye from the sideline. What do you see? What do you see? What I see is almost the end of the show. But before we get there, we've got Do You Remember? We've got... I told you earlier, we opened up the show with uh, 
Pierre Lebron over at The Athletic mentioning a possible name to keep an eye on for Flyers trade. Uh, you can read that over at 973ESPN.com. Holy moly. Bills tonight back as they take on the Tigers. That's a early game, by the way, 6 o'clock start. More Sports Bash coming up on 97.3 ESPN. Now, back to Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, we'll get ready to wrap up the show. Uh, Phil's lineup tonight, as we told you earlier, they're running the same lineup as they did last night out there. We'll refresh for everybody who is just getting in to their cars. You know, Phil's playing about 10 minutes. <laughs> so, uh... At little six, you know, they've been starting these games at six forty this year, right? Is that just for the school year? So it's like the Monday through Thursday. I'll have Frank Close on game day talk about. This. He talked about this previously on Philly's mailbag about how they do this like Monday through Thursday to get the game in a little earlier, and then Friday normal set. Schwarber, Castellanos, Harper, Turner, Romuto, Stott, Marsh, Clemens, Harrison, and Wheeler's on the mound tonight. That's your starting lineup for the Phils. Uh, do you remember? June 8th. June the 8th, yes. These were things that happened on this day, June 8th. Um, let's see what we got for you today. We had some uh, conversation earlier about uh, Dalvin Cook, by the way. If, uh, we were just talking about that with um, Jeff Kerr. It looks like he's going to get, he got released by. Uh, yeah, it Minnesota. looks like it's pretty official at this point. Yeah, so Cook out for Minnesota, and um, he will be a free agent. Chris Paul as well. So there were kind of the two big stories outside of the area today. Chris Paul looks like he's going to be uh, waived. I don't know what that means for his contract, though. Like, how does that – the reason why they're they're getting rid of him. Well, so he has a clause in his contract that he – they have to get him off the books by a certain date. Or he has a, a whole new uh, salary ticket. I think it's they say it's actually twenty eight million. So is he? Does the team that signs him, they automatically pick up the next year of the contract? So they don't work on a new deal. Well, if they trade him, it's up to the new team. You're talking about a trade. I'm talking about if he gets waived. If he gets waived, he's completely a free agent. Exactly. So the team can sign him to right. the veterans but minimum. The, the not, reason not. why they're talking about waiving him is because he has to be off the books before the start of the new year or the new money kicks in. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, on this day, by the way, NFL fans, you might remember, um, you know, back in when you were growing up, some of you, uh, on this day was the merger. 1966, the NFL and the AFL merged into a single league that had 26 teams in 2570, uh, in 25 cities, and has become the league that we now know as the NFL. But the NFL was around for 47 years, the AFL for seven seasons, and the AFL. Now, could you ever see a scenario? Where the XFL or USFL, if they were still around in like seven years from now, that that would happen. No. I don't see them getting big enough. Probably not. This is a, I mean, just think about this though. Like basically what happened with Liv and the PGA and the golf world. But Liv was only around for a year. two years. Yeah. I mean, the AFL, Al Davis, all those you know, NFL films documentaries where he talks about, you know, 
we're at war with the NFL. Gotcha. You yeah. know, and then it was like, ah, we're supposed to work together now. Uh, on this day, Larry Bird triple-double against the Rockets as uh, it clinches the Celtics' 16th championship. Meanwhile, last night, Nikola Jokic became the first player with multiple triple-doubles in the NBA Finals. Yeah, I think um, we watched Jokic, and I was watching last night, and I'm like, this is hilarious how, like, this guy does this almost effortlessly. Just so different from everybody else in the league. The way he does things, it's just... It's, I actually think it's fun to watch him. Some people are like, eh, this is not aesthetically pleasing. He just, it's just fun because he's so unassumingly better than you. I enjoy watching him because you never know what he's going to do. And I think that's one of the things I love about sport, which is, you know, the great players are going to do something, but you tune in to see what. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, you're, you're waiting for him to kind of like not have that good game and he just doesn't have it. He just has the good game all the time. All the time. It's every it's, time. He's amazingly consistent. And that's something that I think, you know, where do you talk about? Oh, this, that and beat him in these playoffs, in playoff games. His game is more suited to be able to not have that bad night. I mean, you could argue that he has exponentially elevated his game in this postseason. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and look, Murray's awesome. I mean, Murray's just... He wouldn't be here without Murray. Nope, well, it's a duo, and that's what it is. You know, you need the two guys. You need the Batman and you need the Robin. Yeah, Jordan needed Pippen, you know, Kobe needed Shaq, and the list goes on. Yeah, you've, you've, you've got to, just a tremendous pairing there, a guy that can shoot, um, and the other guy who can do just about everything. Like, uh, I've, I've said before that it's almost like Jamal Murray was born to play with Nikola Jokic. Doesn't it seem like that? Very good. To, they're a very, very perfect duo for each other. Although they've been together for quite some time, and this is the first chance. So patience sometimes. Well, Murray friends. was injured a couple times, so we can't hold all the Once. Cases. Yeah, he was hurt. And, and yeah, but I'm saying they, they had many shots at this. Came up short, but they didn't panic. They didn't fire the coach. They didn't break it up. <laughs> uh, and on this day, 2010, Steven Strasburg and uh, back then Giancarlo Stanton both made their major league debuts. Strasburg with 14 strikeouts. Then Carlo Stanton went three for five. Wasn't he called Mike Stanton for a while? Yes. I remember those days. was Mike Stanton at that time. I wasn't around for the AFL-NFL merger. Yeah, that was 2010. Strasburg. Now, uh, do you think the Nationals regret holding him out of those uh, playoffs that one year? I would. You have to. I mean, it was one of the most idiotic moves in, in sports history. They flew up in their face. They ended up winning the championship though. 2019. Nine years after Strasburg got in the league, he wins that uh, World Series. All right, everybody. Enjoy the Stanley Cup tonight.